Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 65, leading by example. I'm Scatty and with me as always is my buddy Matt. Hello, hello, hello. We are covering A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons in a tandem reread. And in this episode, we got five new chapters coming at you. Here they are. Jamie 5 from A Feast for Crows. Then we jump over to Dance with Dragons where we've got Reek 3, John 7, and Danny 6. Then we're going to jump back over to Feast to do Cersei 8. This, of course, is following our special reading order developed by Game of Owns, a fellow podcast. And the reading order is called A Feast with Dragons. You can find that reading order on our website, DavosFingers.com, or at FeastWithDragons.com. And it's been great so far, and we've loved it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. Every, every time I tell somebody about the combined reading order, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember those are... Those are together. That's really cool that you're doing that. They're always intrigued. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, like we've talked about before, I think for new readers, I'd recommend reading A Feast for Crows than reading A Dance with Dragons. Yeah, kind of just how they were written. Pure style. But uh, yeah, yeah. going back and doing this, going back and doing this reread, I think it's really fascinating, and you pick up on a lot of different things by doing it this way. It's kind of cool. But. Yeah, not unlike Star Wars, where I frequently recommend Machete Order. The, fir- the first yeah. time, the first time though, you know, maybe just as released. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, go ahead. Uh, let's see. Moving to announcements. So, as we are wont to do, we have got some special episodes coming up for those who uh, are with us on Patreon and support us there. Films get fingered. You'll remember those where we watch movies and finger the crap out of them. In other words, we just talk about them. Yeah. Um, We got two of those coming up over the coming months. Uh, We are going to, first of all, do Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm so excited for this. This is... This is following a poll that we did on our Patreon page where we asked our patrons which movies that have been out and released for a while they would think be fun to hear about. We've always done new movies that have just been released in theaters. We thought, let's go back into our catalog and find some other movies that we've loved you know, for years and years and years. We put up some options, and Raiders of the Lost Ark got the most votes. So we'll be doing that one here. We honestly haven't even pinned down a date yet, but it'll be soon. And uh, then, of course, we've got a certain blockbuster film releasing mid-December that (laughs) we will be, of course, reviewing as well. Yeah, absolutely. If you couldn't pick up on the hints, that is Star Wars The Last Jedi. I'm I'm so excited about both of these films, Get Fingered. I I haven't, Matt, I don't think I've watched Raiders of the Last Ark in 15 years. It's been a long time. Really? Yeah, it's been a really long time. And I'm excited. I can't remember much about it, to be honest. I remember, you know, jungle, ball rolling, treasure hunting stuff. And I remember, like, Russia and cold. And beyond that, I I don't remember a lot. I'm really excited to tackle Raiders again. (laughs) I think it's probably been... It's probably been five or six years for me, yeah. at least. I, yeah. I did a Indiana Jones rewatch, if, but it's been years. Yeah, so yeah. Good for you. I'm excited for it, too. Yeah. And then, yeah, absolutely. Star Wars. I, I think uh, I told I think I think told you, Matt, I've decided to play Scrooge again this year and was lucky enough to get, mm-hmm. get cast. But I told them, I'm like, look, I got Star Wars tickets on this night, so if we have a show, I have to be out of here by this time. And, uh, and they're like, all right fine you can skip pictures and stuff and uh go go out and do star wars so 
I'm stoked. I'm ready for that. I tell you what, man. Me too. <laughs> All right. So uh, this is uh, ho- hopefully not a t- too big of a shock for people because we usually give more than more than one episode of of warning, but. We it's so true. <laughs> yeah, we kind of didn't realize what time in the calendar it was, and and how much time we'd need. But we this is the last episode before we'll be taking a break until the new year. Uh, so this this will release in the second uh, week or so of November, and uh, we'll be taking a break through the holidays, um, so that I can do my mm-hmm. show and that we can recharge a little bit. Uh, I know it probably doesn't seem like it to you guys, but. This is a reasonable amount of effort for us, <laughs> and every ten months or so, we could use a little bit of a break. So, we're doing that. Uh, we're going to take a break until the new year. Uh, we will put for those those of you that are patrons, uh, we'll put the Patreon on pause for December, uh, so there'll be no you know no collection in December since we won't be working on new episodes and content and stuff outside of that Star Wars episode that we, that we will release. Um, and right. we'll be back uh, for episode sixty six. Order 66 uh, in mid-January, so look for that. That's right. Uh, it is a, it is an awfully nice time to just recharge, to explore some different things. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's nice to be able to pick up a book that's not A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Even if for a little bit, and maybe write some music. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I mean, last year, for instance, I mean, not obviously not everybody listening to this, but some people listening to this got a recommendation for me for King Killer Chronicles, which I would not have had time to read the whole thing without the break last year. Yeah. And so, if you mm-hmm. read that and liked it and and were recommended by me, only happened because of the break. Anyway, we need we need new food for thought in addition to this wonderful series. We're creative people that like to explore the things, and so yeah, it's it's just a nice time to explore that i get to do some acting on the side and uh just do some other avenues so thank you as always for supporting the podcast for listening to us more than anything for interacting with us in every way you do but uh it's time for a break yes indeed and on the heels of that happy holidays to everyone it feels early i know it's (laughs) the middle of november but it's the last real chance we'll have to to reach everybody so happy holidays uh be safe drink responsibly Travel safely, beware of the weather, enjoy your family, give more hugs than you think you need to uh, to those you love, and uh, have a good holiday season. Yeah, and we'll be, we're going to be around on Twitter and stuff. Oh, for anyways, sure. So Yeah, we can't, yeah. we can't quit you, baby. <laughs> nope, nor do we want to. Yeah. No. All right, uh, as always, my friends, we are spoiler-free on this podcast up until the end of the current episode. And at that time, we warn you that we are going to start a special segment called Davos After Dark. For our first-time listeners, that is when we let all the spoilers out of the bag. We avoid them for the whole episode for those who are reading through for the first time. And then at the point of Davos After Dark, which we'll warn you about, we get all sorts of spoilery. We talk about whatever we want to talk about for as, however long we want to talk about, uh-huh. and it's a lot of fun. But we, of course, like I said, will warn you so you can drop off before then if uh, if you're avoiding that kind of stuff. Man, that dad session last time was that was epic. So much stuff. We got some good stuff this time, but I don't, th- I don't think we can top that. That was pretty great. Uh, it was. All right. If you want to contact us, suggest topics, uh, reach out to us and tell us we suck or we're great or, you know, whatever, 
uh, or just ask us questions, uh, reach out to us, DavosFingers.com, email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, where we're very active, also reasonably active on the old Facebook, uh, so you can search mm-hmm. for us and find us there. And uh, if you want to learn more about our Patreon program, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Davos Fingers. All right, it's uh, my ep- my episode and my chapter, so I'll just dive in, Matt, unless you got anything to add. Nope. All right, here we are with, then with uh, A Feast for Crows, Jamie 5. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead it doesn't matter, reason bottom line is this the treason. And deep inside, could there be something only if you can see that he will, could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. Uh, uh, uh. This Jamie chapter is a bit of a family affair. And we get the first taste of this new, at least new to us, family, as Jamie and his retinue approach River Run. Davin Lannister. Boisterous, jokey, loud, and sporting more facial hair than anyone should, greets Jamie warmly and bigly. Davin is pretty great in the awful sort of way. He brags to Jamie's squires about beating their forebears in tourney and repeats all sorts of unfounded rumors about Jamie's travails. But he does give Jamie what he wants. A sit rep on River Run. Briefly that sit rep is as follows. Blackfish and the Riverlanders won't leave the castle. Lannisters and Freys sit outside waiting, bored, and growing very tired of each other, frankly. River Run is well provisioned and newly made lord of Riverrun, Emmon Frey, won't let them take the castle by force because it's his new seat and he doesn't want it damaged. Oh, also, half of them really want to hang Edmure Tully just to show Brennan Tully who is boss here, and the other half fear what the Blackfish might do in response or think it won't help if they were to hang Edmure anyway. Jamie tells Davin that Lancel has dissolved his marriage and gone to serve the Faith Militant warning Davin in the same breath that he ought to honor his free wedding as they don't want another red one. Roslyn is pregnant, by the way, that's Edmure's wife, and she's sweet on Edmure, and that complicates the hanging at least in some people's eyes as well. Out of all the couplings in Westeros, these two crazy kids, united at the red wedding as murder fest happened downstairs, seem to be a great fit somehow. It's very weird. United under these circumstances and they seem to get along great. Anyway, it's a bad situation for the besiegers, uh, with food shortages in the land, the Brotherhood picking them off slowly, the Riverlanders deserting here and there, and wolves. There's always wolves to worry about. It's all negative momentum for them. They need something to shake things up. Enter Jamie Lannister. Intent to end this whole affair with the sweetness of his breath, by offering generous terms to Britain Tully. Jamie hopes to end this quickly and without breaking his oath to Catelyn, something about never taking up arms against the Tullys or Starks again. They finish the journey to River Run, and Jamie is reminded of just how hard this would be to take. It's a formidable castle. And he's reminded, too, of his brief time in River Run previously, time spent moving over moon, mooning over Brynden Tully instead of wooing Lysa Tully, as intended. As he rides through the camp, Jamie disparages the Frey camps and notes how many banners are missing from the Riverlord's camps. These people swore fealty to them, but they're absent, a lot of them. 
Anyway, this makes him suspect that her loyalty is not to be counted on, as Davin has hinted at. Jamie spurs, spurns the notion of a war council until he has had a chance to speak with the Blackfish at first light on the morrow. But Jamie can scarcely, scarcely get his tent up before he's invaded by his Aunt Jenna Lannister and her cowering husband, the new Lord of Riverrun, Emmon Frey. Jenna and Emmon express sorrow for the loss of his father and confirm that Tyrion was his killer. Then they ask for details on the death of Cleos Frey. <laughs> you guys remember Cleos. The annoying-ish, but at least seemingly honest Lannister Frey cousin of Jaime's that rode with him and Brienne on their journey to King's Landing before his brains were turned to oatmeal when he was dragged by a fleeing horse across a rocky ground. Well, Jaime doesn't share that whole tale that way. Outlaws attacked them. Cleos bravely scattered them, but it cost his life. Anyway, to be honest, little time is spent in the morning of Cleos. The asking almost really feeling like a formality, in truth, as they move to the heart of the matter. How to end the siege without harming Riverrun. And one more topic that Emin Frey clearly brings up every 15 minutes to anyone that will listen. Just how just a lord of the Trident he shall be. Only it isn't so. See, Emin was given River Run and its incomes, but Baelish and Harrenhal are the power of the Riverlands going forward. Now, just as Harrenhal was before the conquest, 300 years ago. Jenna bullies her husband from the tent so she can talk family matters with Jamie. Those family matters start with bitching about being given River Run, a poisoned prize, as she calls it, and she's in really wrong. The remaining Tully line makes the ownership less clear than anyone would like for River Run. Derry would have been safer, which her family kind of has a claim to. She also questions Cersei's actions to arm the Faith, giving Jaime a history lesson that Cersei needed months ago about the thorn that the Faith Militant was in the early days of Targaryen rule. Jenna also weighs, weighs in on the siege, throwing her voice in with those that say kill Edmure, just to show that the threats have teeth. She also comments on Cersei's rule, one bungle after another in her opinion, that could have all been avoided had Kevin just accepted the offer of King's Hand. She's somewhat sharp and intuitive. She can smell that something is off, but she can't quite identify the incestuous odor that drove Kevin off. Lastly, Jamie asks her if she loved Tywin, her brother. And you get here probably the most humanizing view of Tywin. As a protector of his family, even at the age of ten, when there was no one else doing the job. But who would protect them now? She asks. He left a son, Jamie volunteers. Jenna indicates that while Jamie has many qualities of Tywin's three brothers, it is Tyrion, not Jamie, that is Tywin's son. And that's the end of the chapter. Bit of a long one, kind of a lot happening. A long one with uh, a lot happening inside of a tent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the same tent in two different locations. Uh, moved slightly mm-hmm. downriver, or upriver, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of Davin, Matt? Davin seems like the kind of cousin you like hanging out with at like family reunions. Yeah. You get to see every once in a while, and you just kind of tolerate them because they're just going to brag and talk about things. But they're kind of fun to just chill with. Yeah. Maybe watch a football game with or something. But outside of that, you really don't want to be seen with them. 
Yeah, I that's a that's a reason. <laughs> you know I mean? That's a reasonable description. <laughs> but if he's not there, you're like, oh man, where's Davin? I could I could yeah, really like, use his company right now at this event. You get there and you're like, oh, yeah, like where's Davin? Yeah. Oh, this this would be much. This, this would be cool with Davin. This would be way better with Davin. Oh, now I have to mm-hmm. hang out with Aunt Jenna. Yeah. Um, I I think Davin's my favorite Lannister. So far, I I kind of thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I like he's he's a, he's a he's a total tool. Yeah, he's an absolute tool. But sometimes those types are just fun to hang out with. Yeah, he's like inappropriate in a lot of ways. Like he just says what's on his yeah. mind because he knows he's like yeah. in a position of relative power. But he's just kind of he just kind of seems average. He's not the hero, you know. He but uh-huh. but but also he knows his place. Several times in this chapter, he's just like man, I really shouldn't be warden of the West. Yeah, he's like, got. Let you me know, in on. Let, I'll let you in on this a, secret. There's a certain amount of humility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I, I like. He him. seems like he's trying to do a good job, and oh, sure, actually, and stuff like that. But there's evidence that he is doing a good job. When Jamie gets to the camp, he's he notes that there's all these siege engines and a a ram with a, a fire hardened point, and it sounds like the at least compared the camp's to very organized yeah, and exactly. stuff like that. The latrines have been dug graciously, you know. Uh I, yeah, I mean compared to the phrase especially, it seems like Davin's got things well under control of his camp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard though when you've got a place like River Run, it's been well prepared for a siege like it has by the Blackfish. Yeah. And then you've got essentially two armies um enforcing the siege siege and they can't agree or care to agree on anything it's it's kind of like too many chiefs yeah or too many cooks in the kitchen you know you got the phrase and him and and their button heads and it's and then you got emin Frey too who's doing his own thing and uh yeah it's not a, it's a sticky situation for davin to be in so a sticky I agree wicked. with you he's doing a good job for what he's dealing with yeah you mentioned the chef's analogy i mean it's not just too many. It's like they got a French chef and an Asian chef and, you know, a, a, <laughs> a, a southern chef from, you know, the U.S. southern style. Of, like, they just want very different things. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's, yeah, he's not too tolerant of it. Also, uh, a thing about Davin, one of his favorite words appears to be stoat. <laughs> which he uses to describe virtually every fray except Roslyn, who is not very stotish. So I don't remember looking this up, but Professor Scad wanted to look this one up. So a stoat, if you didn't know, because I didn't, Uh it's it's, it's basically a little rodent. It's related to a weasel and a ferret. It's also close to otters, badgers, and wolverines. But they're tiny. Uh They're tiny, skinny little things. Very solitary, but they love to eat rabbits, even though rabbits are, like, three times as big as they are. That's, like, their food of choice. So, like, it's kind of it's kind of a good analogy for the phrase in it general. Really is. Right? Yeah. They're kind of... They're I will- looked that up, too, and I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, yeah, this totally makes sense. I mean, they, they've been noted yeah. to look weaselish, you know, just on the surface. That's mm-hmm. one thing. But in addition, they're, like, they're kind of not afraid to bite off more than they should chew. You know, they're kind of, uh, you know, willing to attack the rabbit, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Once they're assured that they can cat, that they can 
defeat the rabbit, right? Yeah, perhaps. Ben, but... Yeah, yeah. But it, although uh, that that's an interesting outcome from from the Red Wedding. I mean, you you covered this uh, to some some good depth uh, in your Red Wedding special episode. Uh, you know, Walder is he's wheeling and dealing, right? For for you know to make the Red Wedding happen to try to get basically to try to enhance his status and yet yep. what we learn in this chapter is he got another castle but they're not running the riverlands exactly it's kind of funny yep. tywin was tywin was very underhanded with that uh yeah with when he was doling out the rewards he's like yeah you can have river run yeah but, but i never said you had control of the riverlands yeah <laughs> yeah pretty funny yeah read the fine print buddy yeah all right. Well, that's uh, that's Dev- that's Davin. What uh, what do you think of Jenna? She's really cool. Yeah, she's right up there with a favorite Lannister too. Yeah, cool aunt. Yeah, cool aunt. I mean, in this, in this little chapter hidden in the middle of of A Feast for Crows, we may maybe the best two Lannisters of the bunch. And you know, this <laughs> Lannister's been afraid for I think they say forty years. Maybe it was fifty. Yep. I, don't, I don't remember, but it's um, uh, fifty years. 50 years but Mm -hmm. she is a piece of work she seems intuitive she seems like she gets it she has a sense of history with all the uh the stuff she teaches jamie about the faith militant uh she can smell when things are are up man like maybe she was the heir that tywin really needed (laughs) you know what i mean yeah and she's also got she's got a certain she's got that right balance of like tough love and tenderness. Yeah. And it seems like she's kind of taken those Lannister kids or Tywin's kids a little bit under her wing, maybe following the death of Joanna. I don't know that it's ever explicitly stated, but but Jamie thinks of her in an almost maternal way and and that's kind of cool to see that she's got that side of her as well where she'll be brutally honest with him, but at the same time she's tugging on his ear yeah. and doing those things. Yeah, there's there's some love there for sure. It's an interesting thing. You know, usually in this society it seems like uh you know, when the woman marries the man, they would go back and live, you know, in in the the man's kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. But they stayed in It's a submissive relationship. Yeah, but they stayed in a lot of ways. They stayed in King's Landing though. Mm-hmm. Is what it seems like. Uh, they, uh, Jamie mentions how frequently, you know, she was at at table, you know, joking with, uh, japing with the person to her left, you know, instead of talking to Emin Frey, and it implies that that they were around a lot, right? I, th- I think they lived at Cashley Rock, despite the fact that Emin was second, I think, in line for succession of of the twins. Yeah, and and we can see uh, how their relationship goes. That she's definitely the one that runs things. Oh, for so. sure. <laughs> yeah, this guy is. Yeah, he's been trained. Yeah, <laughs> she says literally to him at one point, uh, "Go, go out for a breath of fresh air." And he's so daft he doesn't even get it. He's like, "A breath of fresh air," and she's like, "Or a long piss, dude. Get out of here." <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, she's for sure in control. Oh, it makes me love her even more. Yeah, yeah, she's pretty good. I like her. Yeah, she's got she's got the what right of it with Cersei. Uh... And oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I was just going to move on slightly. Uh, you mentioned it in, of course, in your summary, but uh, what did you think of her giving that insight into Tywin and Gurm revealing that to us? Uh, you you mean the story specifically about about uh, standing up for his sister? That thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, it's um, you know Tywin had had more than one motive for doing that. Uh, Tywin, as we know, is probably from the age of six was disappointed with his father and thought he wasn't strong mm-hmm. enough, and so had many reasons. But but realistically, the way Jenna lays this out. She was given away on the cheap. She was the only the only female uh, in this line mm-hmm. of Lannisters, and was given away not mm-hmm. even to a first heir. Um, right. And everyone in the hall, everyone, was either mocking it openly or you know laughing under their breath. And mm-hmm. and Tywin at ten, you know, stood up and challenged that and. You know, it, it it doesn't it doesn't change my opinion of Tywin. Um, but it does. It it, it 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 I don't know how to put it. Well, it gives you a good foundation for the reason he is the way he is. He is doing all sure. these things for House Lannister, and he's been doing them since he was ten or earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. always about protecting and enforcing the value and and prestige of House Lannister, and we see it here. And and you don't get the sense that what he's done here is bad or wrong or egregious, but as he grew into the man he was, you know, the measures became more drastic and unforgivable, in my opinion. But, yeah, you can see here the seeds of a man that's just trying to protect his family. Yeah, well said. It's almost like he, you know, at that age, he's like, well, I can just can picture him thinking like, oh, I can't do anything about this right now, but one day, you know, one day this will be mine and I'll make sure that House Lannister never goes through this humiliation again. Yeah. And instances like this only serve to harden his resolve, yeah. even at such a young age. But yeah, there's always those, uh, Gurm is a master at allowing you to hate a character but then just throw in like one or two things in there that make you go, that was kind of cool. Yeah, pieces of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're just like, oh, that was kind of, I like that, standing up for his sister. And yeah, maybe the overall motive is, you know, wanting to make sure that House Lannister's reputation doesn't sink yeah. further into the toilet. Yeah. But uh, it's still cool. But But at the same time, as much as Jenna respects and loves him for what he did, you don't really mm-hmm. get the sense that she had much love for him as a person. I mean, in, in you know, she, she says what she says, which is which is basically, you know, every every little girl needs a, a big brother to take care of her. Which, yep, take that for what it is. But but also, when she goes into the next portion of this discussion, where she's talking about the son that he left behind, she is terrified that Tywin actually left a son behind that could continue his work. (laughs) She knows what a scourge Mm -hmm. he's been. She knows how devilish he was. And she's worried about the fact that Tyrion is around. Right? At least that's how I read it. Yeah. Yeah, she's worried about Tyrion. And, um... 
she yeah she's she's worried that you know there was no low was too low for Tywin to stoop to is I think is an agreement with what you're saying um and Tyrion's got those same qualities yeah so I agree yeah I mean I think I think the way she puts it is um it might not be exactly these words but Jamie says he left a son and she says that's what I'm afraid of and Jamie no he's like that's a weird thing for her to say why would she be afraid well she's afraid because Tywin was a monster to to the populace and Tyrion also I think she fears will be a monster to the populace and has been already in in some ways although he's done great good in in some cases as well which you could say about Tywin too you could yeah i mean yeah so yeah it's all about and maybe there. that makes them scarier yeah maybe you know yeah how about moving on to some happier topics Roslyn and Edmure who knew isn't that sweet it's lovely look at these two they were kids brought together in these terrible circumstances everyone knows my feelings about Edmure getting crapped on and forced into this marriage well uh, and it's it's kind of sweet that that you know it's got it's got some legs yeah this relationship potentially has some legs it does it does yeah. and you know i to your point about being forced into it uh, most people are forced into marriages in in these upper families but but his was unique yeah, it was a little bit unique in that yeah. he is he is atoning for rob's transgressions true yes unique in that sense for sure uh it reminded me of something. We talked way back. Uh, um, Clash of Kings? Not sure. Uh, with Sansa and Tyrion. And how hmm. it was destined to fail due to the familial complications involved. That, you know, we, okay. we talked about that whole awkward scene in the bedroom. It's worse than awkward, where Tyrion's gross and basically saying come here and she's like no and he's like all right fine when you're ready come here um yeah you know and that's that's a hard scene to read i think you can pity both characters in that scene but regardless i think what we mm. came out what we came out with was god it sucks for both of them what a terrible position to yep. be in and yet here yeah, are these we got some backlash for that we yeah. did <laughs> we did get a little bit but i i still stand by it yeah. I, what a terrible position for Me both too. of them absolutely it's an awful position yep. to be in for both of them and, you know, yeah, he was drunk and didn't handle it the best, but at the same... Well, whatever. <laughs> Go listen to that episode if you want that discussion again. Um, yep. The point is, these two kids, Rosalind and Edmure, are not in that different of a situation. I mean, they are not in... They are not maybe as powerful a characters as, as Sansa and Tyrion, but they're in a similar situation. Their families have basically just murdered each other, and right as they were doing it, to you know, mm-hmm. to cement their marriage in the midst, in the midst, of the act. yeah, in the midst and in the mist, the red mist. Uh, oh man, you know, the, and and here they are, they're working it out, and not everyone is the same. But we talked at that point about Sans and Tyrion about what if these two kids could just put it aside and just try to find some common ground and be a power couple. I remember saying almost that exact phrase, mm-hmm. and you know, these these two are. They're making. They're trying to make it work. They're doing their best. 
The right yeah. amount of love and lust can can do a lot. Yeah, I just hope they can just be happy. Yeah, yeah. pray for a girl. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Definitely. But even if they have a boy, I mean, unless things drastically change, the phrase and the Lannisters pretty much have River Run under control. But it, I mean, if they didn't just kill the baby outright. But I, what I'm saying is they don't. No, they probably still need to kill him, they'd don't kill, they? They'd just probably to, kill like, him. Quell, just to like squash any a thought or spark of potential future uprising yeah. to place him back or I think so in river run or whatever. I, I mean, yeah. I think that's an undercurrent of this chapter of, you know, these people are unhappy with the fact that they've been given river run Jenna and Emin, even though it yeah. is a major boon for them, they're still unhappy yeah. because the issue is cloudy and they'll do whatever yeah, they the can same to reason. remove that cloud. It's the same reason, uh, the Targaryen kids got killed during Robert's rebellion, and yep. and all that, yeah. and why Robert wanted to kill Danny and Viserys across the Danny and Viserys. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It is. You're right, Matt. I usually am. Oh. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, a quick thing on Cersei. She was right to send Jamie. You you get the impression mm-hmm. in that I don't remember whether it's a Jamie chapter or a Cersei chapter now, but when they depart uh, from King's Landing, when Jamie departs from King's Landing, you kind of get the sense that she's just kind of sending him away. She said something to that effect before, like the sooner I'm rid of him, the better. Uh, yep. And so maybe she stumbled into this victory. I don't know, but this play this is a friggin' quagmire. They don't know what to do. They're friggin' fake hanging Edmure every day. They like they have no solution what to get into mess. this. Yeah, they have no solution what to get into this castle, mess. and they need something to like you know shake it loose. And yeah, maybe Jamie's what they need. They need something for sure. And mm-hmm. good on you know good on Cersei for for having some sort of at least some sort of impression that there was a standstill that needed something different. Good on good on her for that. I, I think I would. I think I would lean more towards what you said of <clears throat> Lucky. her accidentally stumbling on this little victory. <laughs> Matt, why do you hate Cersei so just... much? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I dislike her quite a bit. Yeah. She she entertains me to no end. Yeah. She's just yeah. funny to me. But uh, Jamie just strikes me as having this, and I don't know if he's always had it, but he just has this really quiet confidence to him right now of just, hey, we'll just come in and get her done. And yeah. and part of it is the fact that he doesn't care that much. He's just like, I got to get River Run back, so I'm just going to give him really good terms that he can't turn down, and, and we'll get this done. Yeah. NBD. And it's interesting. I can't remember what he offered. Heightened by the so fact that he does it. care that he doesn't uh, – he does care that he doesn't want to fight Tully's. So he's like, hey, I've got an idea. Let's just end this thing by giving him an offer he can't refuse. Imagine that, guys. Yeah. So. It's almost like there was a movie that came out a while ago that said that exact line. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Hmm. hmm. Did George see that movie? Unknown. <laughs> uh, I got a few tiny little notes in here. Sure. Do you have anything else? Uh, Yeah, tiny stuff. Go ahead. So, um, Davin, this is more of a question, and I think it can be brought up here. 
rather than in Davos After Dark. He talks about fires being lit in the high places, almost yeah. like signal fires. And I was uh, a little puzzled by that. Um, did some reading into it, but wondered if you had the same thoughts on what those could be. Um, well, I, I don't know if it goes in hand in hand with the other this other note I had. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I think it seems like Davin has the right of it. There are signal fires to indicate movements or locations of parties that want to know where each other are. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe there's more to it than that, but that's that's what I took from it. But I also, this is just kind of dropped in, but Davin mentions that Rolor is kind of making his way into the families of Westeros. People are picking it up, and it's probably small at this point, mm-hmm. but it's a movement. And um, it's happening. I don't know. I don't know if that means if the way I was going to relate those two things is like the people are the people are maybe protecting at least pockets of them are protecting the Brotherhood without banners, uh, helping with the fires maybe. But uh, they're interested in helping, and I think the the spread of this faith is an example of that. That it's happening. It's a movement. People are um, involved. They want to help. Yeah. And the other thing besides the Brotherhood without banners is that I that I thought of as I was just trying to figure this out and puzzle through this is there are still Stark or Rob Stark forces scattered throughout the Riverlands. Yeah, they mentioned that. You've got uh, Kyle Condon's guys and Ronald Stout's guys that they le- they left 600 men at the Green Fork. I had to go and remind myself of that number. I did not just pull it out of my butt. Mm-hmm. Um, there were the Manderley men, uh, Manderley and others who were on the other side of the D- river Duskendale. on the Trident. Yeah, when it was, well, not at Duskendale, oh, but yeah, they were yeah, on the yeah, other yeah, side yeah. of the they Trident when Gregor Clegane yep. came. Yep. And um, they... A whole bunch of them that didn't get killed scattered. Yeah. And there's others too. So there's potentially all these maybe little pockets of forces that I don't know if they're trying to continue the war in some sort of covert or guerrilla way, or maybe they're just trying to get home. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, there's those guys out there too that uh, there's significant pockets um, of these guys that could potentially be doing something. Yeah, it's a bit unknown as to exactly who's doing what. The Brotherhood Without Banners is the known group to kind of the area, and so they might be getting credit for a lot of things they're not doing, right? Yeah, there's, and, that's, that's part of the problem with a POV-based book. Yeah. If you don't have a POV amongst these groups, you, you don't know no what, they're, what doing. they're doing. Yeah, yeah, you don't know. And it is, it is uh, I don't know, subtly, it's mentioned in this chapter that there are, there are also, you know, pockets of wolves about. And um, Jamie even says to, to one of the guys watching, "There, you know, wolves are still imminent, and you don't know whether he means the four or two-legged kind." But yeah, they're they're around, and and it's certainly a factor. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what role, if any, they have to play going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um. Story? Nah, I don't want to tell that one. It's lame. Uh, anything else from you on this chapter? I don't think so. There's just one more tiny little thing. Jenna says at one point that there may be some hope for Ty, that's her grandchild, Mm -hmm. if he learns from me, Jenna, and not his father, (laughs) Cleos, who's dead. 
did, is that a mistake that they made? Did she mean grandfather, not learn from Emin? Or did she mean really uh, not learn from his dead father? That's kind of what I picked up. That it was a mistake? Or that he shouldn't learn from his dead father? No, that I was thinking Cleos. Okay. Just a weird thing. You don't learn from the dead directly too much. Uh, but yeah, well, maybe just the fact that he is dead. I don't know. <laughs> Avoid his mistakes. Yeah, perhaps. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Shall we move on? Let's do it. We've got Reek now. His daddy lost a war, so he's living in the north. Now his son was stuck between being a kraken and a wolf. Is the young Bridgeoy with a smile so sly, put an arrow through your eye? Is the young Bridgeoy make a lady scream and a want to be a king? Is the young Gridjoy. Loyalty speaks, but there's something there that rigs is the own Rhymes with lots of things. Ramsey has returned with his hunting party empty-handed, and all Theon Greyjoy wants to do is reek somewhere further away. A disappointed Ramsey is an abusive Ramsey, a Ramsey at his worst. Fortunately for Theon... Ramsay already took out his frustrations on an old man who had the audacity to call him Lord Snow, beheading him and taking his goats. Reek gets away this time with just needing to stable the horses. Uh, the party had been looking for some fray cousins, formerly in the company of Wyman Manderley, then lost, and now feared dead. With Ramsay, though, even an unsuccessful hunt ends with a feast. And feast they do, at the expense of the hosting Lord Harwood Stout, who is quickly running out of food and patience, though knows better than to mention a shortage of either. But the feast barely even find its, finds its legs before it's interrupted by Roos Bolton, Ramsay's dad, who orders everyone out. Everyone, save our Reek and his Ramsay. They dance around the topic of the missing phrase. Wyman is distraught. The phrase are distressed. And Ramsay says they should have never left Lord Wyman's slow-as-fuck caravan. Next, though, we get school time, as Papa Roos tries to quiet and teach his son. First... Their hold on the north is tenuous. They do have powerful friends, it's true, but the northern lords are all of questionable loyalty and would turn on a dime if one of Ned's sons were found. Second, reminding him to speak carefully of Ned's progeny. The northern lords loved the Starks, and it was the evil Theon that killed the heirs. They are dead! Remember, they're not alive. Third, treat the northern lords with care. They need them. Threatening to turn their skin into boots, as Ramsay has just suggested of Lady Barbary Dustin, is as foolish as it is impractical, because human skin would not make good boots. Fourth, a peaceful land and a quiet people is the goal. Fear is not the way to rule. Lessons complete, Roos informs Ramsay that it is time to march. Stannis has come down from the wall and is moving on Winterfell. Not the Dreadfort, as they had hoped. They had laid a trap for him. So, they will march to Winterfell themselves, have a wedding to Faria Stark, then await Stannis at Winterfell. But there he will be crushed against the walls and a force from the rear, led by Arnulf Karstark. Lastly, Roose has plans for Reek. Or really, for Theon. While he takes Theon from Ramsay, we get the story of Ramsay's creation. Roos was out hunting a fox when he chanced on a newly married miller's wife. He had been denied prima nocta, and decided to take his due while her husband swung from the tree above them for his crime. 
A year later, the miller's wife showed up with a baby, demanding assistance. Ruth basically bought her silence year by year in exchange for her promising never to tell the baby who his father was. But she didn't keep her end of the bargain, always whispering to Ramsay about his rights and who his father was. While Ramsay is not a suitable heir, it's what Roos is left with. His only true-born son, Domeric, having been killed by Ramsay, and Roos is certain that any new brothers, through Fat Walda, will also be killed by Ramsay, something Roos finds natural and seemingly not even a negative. Roos then sets to work trying to repair the man Theon has become, to set Reek aside. Torture's a strange businessman, and the fear of retribution makes Reek very resistant to change. He won't bathe, he won't let them give him new clothes, he won't even let them wash the rags he wears currently. And when Roos thanks him for taking Winterfell and giving him the North, Theon thinks it must be a trap. He is truly a man broken by fear. At the end of the chapter, Roos presents Theon to Barbary Dustin, who doesn't even recognize him, indicating that Theon will somehow be of used to the two of them. Reek wails, begging for them not to bring Theon into this. He is only Reek. It rhymes with freak. And the chapter ends. So, poor Theon. Poor Theon. Finally, at least, temporarily, uh, removed from the whole Ramsay situation. Um, Mm. But... When taken away, I skipped this in the chapter summary, but when taken away was threatened by Ramsay. Basically, dude, when you come back, I'm taking a finger, period, regardless of what happens. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So just get ready for that. And also spy on him for me while you're gone. You know, which Roos is wise to, of course. But man, Theon can't win. And, uh, you know, it's good to remember... Maybe he shouldn't win. He's a pretty terrible person in some ways. Uh, you know, the torture is pretty outlandish. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he's just a terrible dude. <laughs> yeah. and, and what's weird is, I mean, of all the villains in A Song of Ice and Fire, he's right up there with maybe Gregor Clegane as just like, just pure villains you know just not a shred of humanity but then they throw in this like this little tiny shred of humanity and it's not even a good shred it's just a shred of humanity where ramsey in his own twisted way is almost like he tortures this other human being until he's broken down to like this stinking driven by fear guy just because Ramsey wants his old friend back. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like he's, he's trying to turn Theon into his old friend reek just so he can have his old friend reek back, but obviously under his control. And that's really weird and twisted, but also kind of human in a really weird and twisted, disgusting, terrible way. You know what I mean? It's weird. Yeah, it also serves to remember how Ramsay treated the original Reek. Um, you know, it's not like he's pining away for this soulmate. I mean, he basically set the other Reek up to die as well, right? He, yep. he had Reek if pretend to be him what happened. at the mm-hmm. storming, right? And and so he was killed. Um, you know, so I, he's not... He's got no... 
I'd be interested if, if anyone in the Kalisar were challenged this. He's got no sense of goodness in him at all. I agree completely. None. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like it's weird because he didn't treat Reek like a friend. No. That's established. Yet, after Reek dies, Ramsey could have just still taken Theon on as like his little pet and slave and everything without making him roll around in crap but and try dress to replace in rags exactly and all what he was. But he's trying to rebuild Reek. Yeah. And that's even more twisted. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost maybe like uh, Ramsey has a sense of uh, of how terrible he is. He has a sense of uh, what an awful person he is. And if he can make this other creature more vile than him in some way, that maybe that props him up in a, a little bit. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. No. He's terrible. Yeah. You know, and uh, Roos isn't much better. No. Like, he's he's less overtly cruel, perhaps. But this story, uh, you know... so That he, makes him even scarier to me. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, but, I mean, maybe it's just, uh, you know, Ramsey with age. You know, like, if you live long <laughs> enough, you learn to keep some things hidden and, and under the, you know, less less obvious. But this story, you know, he talks about... Well, he lost the fox, and his horse pulled up lame, and the miller's wife wasn't even that great in bed, you know. Uh, and he's just like, oh, it was just a dismal day. Ugh. Mm-hmm. It's just so callous. Ugh, it's annoying. so evil. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's mm-hmm. the definition of a disassociated ruling class that just has no sort of empathy at all for humanity below them. Roos is a terrifying dude. Like, you, you almost, in some ways, just because of the terrible treatment Theon has received from Ramsay, you're almost like, oh, Roos is kind of a good guy. Look, he's treating him like a human. Nicely, like, yep. He's, like, yep, no. Absolutely. Don't fall into that trap, because he's yep. got a motive Take for a all step back, yeah, take a deep like, breath. Yep. Yeah. Ugh. He is not a nice person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How old do you think Roos is? Do we know that? Uh, no, we don't. Does the wiki not say? I don't even remember. I've tried to find that out myself, Mm -hmm. and we've got approximations. Oh, it gives you like one of those 20-year gaps that the wiki's famous for? Yeah. Born sometime before 248 and 259. You're like, "Mm -hmm." Mm-hmm. So they think, if I remember right, uh, you know, 40-ish. Yeah. In order to have had a son that kind of grew up like Domeric. Yeah, that makes sense. So that would put him at like 260-ish or or later. Yeah. Or before, I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah that makes sense. So. Yeah, because Domeric had to be in his 20s or close to be Ish, considered yeah. his own man and you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I'd say between 16 and 20. Yeah. Um, hmm. But... Uh, that's another thing is he's like yeah Demeric died Ramsey probably killed him and Ramsey will probably murder any other kids I have too shocking (laughs) it's shocking why like and he seems like whatever it'll make my wife sad well it's I kind of like her because she screams when we're doing it but uh or squeals what was 
Uh, yeah, I don't remember the exact words, but yes. Yeah, she makes noises in bed, which he likes. The other two were, were silent. Uh, which I, you know, I mean, I can't disagree with the sentiment, I suppose. But it's a weird thing to bring up with somebody you don't care about at all. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally surprised by Roos's acceptance of Ramsey as his heir without... I, I, here's, here's the main reason. Roos seems like a guy that feels in control. And the fact that he thinks he's not going to live for another 10 or 12 years for another child to grow up. Because what he says is, a, mm-hmm. you know, a boy, a boy leader of a house is the bane of, of that house, right? That it doesn't work out. Like, why does he think he's not going to live 12 years? I mean, I, I guess maybe he knows the risk he's taking here with this, this whole gambit to rule the North. But, man, it seems like he'd be looking at Ramsey and saying, I got to get Fat Walder to pump some shit out now the more the better because yep. ramsey will destroy this house this ain't gonna work out he's gonna destroy yeah. the house this ain't gonna work for out. sure yeah i don't know how well, it is and to i see think... that it, it almost lends credence to some of these crazy theories out there like there's something else weirder going on and i won't go into them here but like why why does he not see the writing on the wall that ramsey will destroy his house if he dies it it will not succeed and... And what I was picking up is is that he's worried that he won't live that long because Ramsey's going to kill him. Oh, really? I didn't think of like, that. I didn't read that. Like once Ramsey, once it's not explicitly stated in the text. You didn't miss anything. It's just what I inferred from it. I see. Uh, once Ramsey gets Winterfell, which he wants, he's like, "I'll marry her right now." You know. Yeah. Once he gets that, he's in power. Yeah, he's the Lord. Bruce can die at that point. Yeah. He's the Lord of Winterfell. He's got it. Yeah, not not unlike what Emmon was saying about about his dad Walder and how we'd owe him service, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's the only thing I can come back to with Roos being okay with Ramsay staying in power is if Roos is thinking, you know, ahead of his line of his legacy of, you know, I've war are the Boltons have warred with the Starks for centuries and we've never been able to break that glass ceiling where the Starks are. They've always been able to hold on to power all these years and years and years. And finally, one of my descendants gets into Winterfell and takes that spot, you know, sits on the Stark throne. And that's the only reason I can come up with for Ramsey or Roos being okay with all of his other mm. kids dying off and Ramsey staying in power because at least one of Roos's kids, a Bolton, a half Bolton, is in Winterfell and has it. You know what he's I mean? He's like, if this is what it but, takes, then so be it. Yeah, he's in. Yeah. You know, the other kids, the highest they can rise potentially is just to inherit the Dreadfort at that point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. If that's what it takes, I don't know if I want Winterfell. (laughs) Hard pass. Hard pass. I'll stay at the Dreadfort. An interesting note about about this whole thing, about the Starks losing power and what it took. And, uh, you know, Roos thanks Theon. uh, Says that the Starks were done and doomed the night that Theon took Winterfell. Mm. It it proves a little bit of all that Red Wedding stuff you wrote about. uh, Because... Rob was alive at that point. Mm-hmm. And so it just proves that Roos's mindset 
even that early, you know, before, at or before, those Stark kids were killed, according to, you know, what, what everyone believes, that he thought at that point the Starks were done, even though Rob was still alive and well, right? It, it just yeah. kind of, it's just kind of proof of Roos's involvement in the plotting early on, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He's like, almost like, there's no better time than now. Yeah. I mean, think about how... The heir to Winterfell is not at Winterfell. Yeah. We gotta do this now, or it's not gonna happen. I mean, just think about how early that happened with Bran and Rickon, and, and the, the, the seizing of Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Rob's at the crag, mm-hmm. right? It's before he even comes yep. back to River Run, before the long march right. up to the twins. Like, there's a reasonable amount of time there where, mm-hmm. you know, where Roose is like, yeah, they're done. And he knew that because he knew about the Red Wedding. He knew there was something going to happen to him. He he mm-hmm. knew it. Like, he he was part of it. At least that's the way I read that. Yeah, and we don't know exactly when he got involved, but he knew that something was going yeah. down. Yeah. yeah. Here's a... Here's a... I think this is the last thing I've got. We can, we can move on to anything you've got as well. Um, mm-hmm. Like, why is Roos telling Theon all this stuff? About the hunt and about the original Reek? Like, every once in a while I just wonder about the motivations that George gets away with. Roos isn't the kind of guy to just kind of let this kind of stuff slip to somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, why is he telling him all this? He does reveal a lot to him. My initial thought is he wants to butter Theon up a little bit. Yeah, just get him talking, get him relaxed. To eventually... He knows that he can't just say, Theon, you're on my side now. Yeah. Just Theon's so far gone psychologically, he can't take that. Yeah. So if he just can play the good cop, you know, if he can play the good cop for a while and and get Theon to think he cares about him and, and all of that, then yeah. maybe then he's... Roos has got an ally into and and perhaps at least keeping tabs on what Ramsey's doing. <laughs> I suppose undercutting, undercutting the person that has destroyed Theon, you know, with these tales of of his origin and and who he is. Yeah. Um, while it might spark an immediate reaction of defense from Theon, the underlying current might be there to start the subversion. So, uh, I like that. I like your explanation. And and we know, if anything, uh, going hearkening back to Roos's intentions leading up to the Red Wedding, he's very patient. Yeah. He's extremely patient. Yep. So, True. You got anything else on this chapter? One more little thing. Little Professor Matt, and I'm not very smart, so this doesn't come very oh, often. Oh, please. But there is an actual syndrome, an actual disorder out there that causes your body to just stink. Do you know that? I did not. Going back to going back to Reek, the original Reek. It's called, and I'm gonna try to pronounce it, trimethylaminuria. <laughs> and it's a bunch of science chemistry stuff. An enzyme fails to properly be like oxidized or something like that. And then this chemical builds up in a person's body and eventually it builds up to the point that, and it's not oxidized and it releases through sweat and urine and even their breath. And it gives off this terrible odor. Wow. 
Yeah, it's uh, a lot of times they say it's a strong, like fishy smelling odor. Huh. Um, but yeah, it's an actual thing. And what's sad is it about it is there's no known cure for it. Nothing you can do. There's there's like little treatments like uh, like drink, tailoring drinking your diet, drinking uh, drinking perfume, drinking perfume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's certain foods that I guess cause it to be more pungent and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So you have to kind of cut that out of your diet, or and that can help it a little bit. Uh-huh. But it's uh, it's there's not a whole lot more. Wow. So. I just assumed this was some sort of fantasy element, but there's some science there. That's yeah. cool. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Huh. All right. That's all I got, though. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to a dance with dragons. John Seven. That's you. And a chapter summary from me. Where we're going up north, where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. Hey, well, the sun is shining, the snow has stopped, and the danger of undead threats and raiding wildlings aside, now is as good a time as any to venture beyond the wall so that the Night Watch's newest six recruits can take their vows in the Nine Tree Weirwood Grove where John himself took his own vows, you know, really not that long ago. Uh, casting aside the protests of Bowen Marsh and even Dolores Head, John elects to lead them out beyond the wall himself. Now, granted, he does take with him a dragonglass armed escort and, of course, his trusty companion, Ghost. Um, but nevertheless, there is some inherent danger in what he's about to do. Now, the recruits themselves are a diverse group. You've got Horse, who comes from Molestown. You've got Aaron, Emric, and Satin from the south of Westeros, below the neck at least. And we've even got, this is fascinating, two wildlings. Their names are Leathers and Jacks, who are seasoned fighting men who they say already have children and grandchildren who had actually elected to take the black. They are the first and only wildlings so far to do so. Now, the trek to the Weirwood Grove takes about two hours, so on the way, John chats with Iron Emmett, Castle Black's man at arms and the trainer of these new recruits. They speak of the difficulties of mixing free folk and black brothers, (laughs) unsurprising after generation upon generation of animosity. Now, John, with this in mind, hopes to make uh, lemonade out of lemons by using free folk, these wildlings, to garrison more of the castles along the wall, increasing the number of eyes along the wall who are watching for undead enemies. Longbarrow, in particular, he means to staff with all women, spearwives, partly to keep them segregated from Randy Knight's watchmen. Uh, When John reveals to Iron Emmett that he is to be given command of that castle and this group of women with this Dolores Ed as his second in command, uh, Emmett reacts not in a not completely displeased way. Uh, Now, as they approach the grove, the scouting Tom Barleycorn reports that nine wildlings, including a giant, are currently holing up in the Weirwood Grove. John and his brethren dismount and approach carefully, ready for a fight. But when they burst into the grove, 
they're met mostly with apathy from the freezing and starving band, two of which are actually already dead. Only the giant takes exception to their being there, roaring to his feet and preparing to wield his six-foot maul. Uh, John's claims that they want no battle go unheard, and it isn't until Leathers, one of the wildling recruits, sues the giant in the language of the old tongue that he calms down. Uh, John promises the group safe haven at Castle Black, dispelling the rumors that the Night's Watch burn alive all free folk who yielded, and uh, they agree to return with John to the Wall. But of course, first, we can't forget what they came out there to do. There are vows to be taken, and they do so. The six new recruits take their Night's Watch vows in a scene that's reminiscent to John and Sam Tarley and their friends taking their own vows. This time, as the recruits say the sacred uh, words of the Night's Watch vow, John silently prays for the watch um, himself. He prays for his family. He prays for himself in his terrible position as Lord Commander. Um, and kind of a, a touching moment of getting into John's head as he just kind of lets it all out. Um, and then they start heading back to the wall. So the band, augmented and slowed by the wildlings, returns back to the wall shortly before dawn. So that makes it even scarier. They're traveling in the middle of the night beyond the wall. Um, waiting for John is a letter from Stannis reporting that he had taken Deepwood Mott from the Ironborn. We know this. We remember from the uh, Asha chapter. And that all the mountain clans had joined him. Yay, PR mission succeed successful. Also joining him daily uh, here and there are fisherfolk, hillmen, free riders, and the like. His numbers swell daily with this gradual influx of, of new men who are willing to join the army, all intent on taking back the north. So now Stannis's force, he reports numbers at about 5,000. Finally, Stannis also reports that Roose Bolton is moving toward Winterfell, presumably to oversee the wedding of his son Ramsay to Arya Stark. Stannis, with commitment of loyalty from Moore's Umber and Arnulf Karstark, means to meet Roose in battle before he can get to Winterfell. Probably a smart idea. He promises, now this is Stannis, promises that he will save Arya if he can, um... But despite these reasonably good tidings, John can't seem to conquer any of his lingering doubts. And so in this uh, this chapter, um, this was a bit of a slow chapter. Someone reading it for the first time might even call it boring. Mm. Uh, but it's one of those chapters that, upon reread, makes a dance with dragons so rich and wonderful. Uh, I loved this look into Jon Snow as a commander. And, you know, it, it mentions that uh, the names of every night's watchmen were written upon his heart, you know. And uh, I don't know, I really enjoyed this chapter, despite the lack of action and stuff. What what were your thoughts on it? Yeah. Uh, so this chapter to me is about... Well, let's take a half step back. What we've seen at the Wall for the last several chapters is a, a lot of conflict, a lot of questioning, a lot of doubt, as John says in this chapter as well. 
uh, about direction. You got Stannis trying to lead. You got Mel there with a prophecy. You got John just trying to wrangle control of a bunch of people that some of them support him, some of them a little bit less so. Uh, a lot of struggle and a lot of uncertainty as to what the future really holds for them. And what this chapter serves as to me is a reminder of what they're all about. It's a it's mm-hmm. a return to their core values, which is we train people to defend the realm. And this is important, regardless of all the risk, regardless of the fact that we just had two rangers with their eyes scooped out show up on pikes. This is important. This is what we do. We train men to defend the wall, and we bring them on board. And here it is. And without those base values, if you give up on something like this, you can never get it back. You have to keep your base values. Everything crumbles if you don't keep them. And that's what this chapter is to me, is a reminder of that. Yeah, and what's great, I totally agree with you. Very well said. And as they're going out to take their vows... They keep those vows in saving those free folk. Yeah. And that's what's also cool is getting back to the core value, like you said, of the Night's Watch, which is to protect the realm of men. You know, they're really their their line of delineation doesn't stop at the wall. They've kind of made it that <laughs> themselves. But really they are there to protect the realm of men. And here they do that. Uh, and taking in those nine dying people, well, two that are already dead. Um, and, and so that's cool that as they take those just seemingly insignificant amount of people, they, they save them. They put themselves in danger by traveling at night and s- slowly, right? They mentioned how much longer it took getting back to the wall with these people. Still they save them and it it's 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 an awesome reminder there as they take their vows of the purpose of the night's watch like you said so well said i like that too yeah it's interesting uh you know one thing you said about upholding the night's watch vows by protecting the realm of men it's it's something john has done to extend mm-hmm. yep. at least some for some of the night's watchmen to extend that border beyond the wall and that the realm of men mm-hmm. is wherever men live. And and yep. we have to protect the exactly. men as part of that. That's something John has done in a short time, is convince mm-hmm. his men of this. And Yeah, and it's uncomfortable for them. Yeah. For some and, more than others, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's doing it and, and that's really cool. It's that's that's what I like about John is his constant thinking outside the box, you know, it's even goes down to Little tiny details like, you know what would help us? If we built some greenhouses here yeah. in Castle Black, you know? Like... Yeah, I was just going to say, um, hmm. I, have, I have written two notes, two, two somewhat uh, differing notes. One says okay. John should be a battle commander. And one says John's not dumb. Look at this, gla- this whole glass thought he has. He would be mm-hmm. a good leader of a community. He could also be a great yeah. battle commander. The plan he draws up, while it's not the most complicated situation probably to resolve, he comes up with a good plan, right? And Oh, you mean when they storm the Yeah, when, the yeah when they come up on the grove, right? Yeah. It's a good plan. And he's mm-hmm. clearly got some other sort of, maybe we'll get, 
get to this uh, in Davos After Dark, but he's got some sort of, I assume, battle strategy or some sort of strategic need for these these dead bodies, um, you know, that we we don't we don't know much about. Um, but but it's unfair, I think, to ask somebody to be both. To be the battle mm. commander and also to be the community leader and thinker. You need mm-hmm. you need different minds handling these things that are completely different motivations. And you need you need different people thinking about them. Mm-hmm. John John shouldn't have to give up on the glass idea. He should be able to go back to his quarters and start drawing things out on paper and designing them and thinking about how could we get them? I know we don't have gold. What else can we offer? What else could we do here? He shouldn't have to drop it because he's got to lead a party north of the wall. Right? You need multiple people in these roles. Yeah, I agree with you. And a part of me wonders, though, how much of has John taken that just upon himself? It's not meant to be a criticism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, just a, it's just an observation about life at the wall. Sure. Sure. And I think what makes him good at both of those things is at his core is he cares about the individual. Yeah. Right? Much like Davos. He cares about people staying alive yeah. and prospering, and, and that's what makes him yeah. a good good at everything, a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to leadership. But also perhaps taking on too much. So the, the name of this episode is lead, Leading sure. by Example. Yeah. And maybe what he really needed to do here was delegate the glass thing to someone else. Right? Mm-hmm. And... You know, I, th- I think leading the troops north was uh, a part of that core set of values that by doing so, he's reinforced with everyone. And so I don't quibble with it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but he, he needs he needs he needs to delegate. He needs to get help. Yeah, I agree. And that really just goes to show how oh, the disastrous consequences of both the great ranging yeah. and the assault on castle black. So many good men, you know, Donald Noy comes to mind as one of the primary ones died in that. And really John doesn't have a lot of people who he can truly trust to delegate these outside the box items to. Yeah. And man, man, when you think about the consequences, just, so many good men are dead. And that sucks. Yeah. No, it's it's a point well made. He doesn't have he doesn't have, you know, straight A students here ready ready to run run with the ball. Um mm-hmm. you know, still he's gotta find somebody. I agree. We mentioned this maybe a couple episodes back of at what point does John just become overwhelmed by the exhaustion of it yeah. all? You can only take so much as a human being. Right. And yeah. at some point he just needs a nap. Yeah. <laughs> so, so on that point, like, why do you think John decided to lead the ranging? I kind of gave my, my feeling a little bit very briefly. The lead the ranging. Sorry. The, um, uh, the, the path North to, to the, to the vows. Yeah. Which I guess technically is a ranging. Yeah. Uh, you're going beyond the wall. It's probably the wrong word I um, used, but you get what I mean now. Yeah. I, I think that uh, John is very much 
the type that, like the episode title suggests, he leads by example. And if he wants other Night's Watchmen to to um, to keep their to, to take the vows seriously, he needs to show the seriousness of it. Uh, I think that's an outward reason for him wanting to do it. Now I'm going to dig a little bit and maybe get into some psychology of John mm, that I'm probably not qualified to give. And that being that I think he maybe still feels a little bit guilty over him not keeping his vows, mm. specifically a greet. Uh, and, you know, if he sees this as a way to kind of reinforce those or not remake them but if he sees it as a way of kind of getting back there and getting back to the root of things and praying to the old gods uh, I think there might be some of that and you also see him just pour his heart out in this prayer uh, to oh. his god so I think it was also kind of almost a religious trek for him as well so I'm now I'm getting into a third reason where you know He's always, he grew up with his father, Eddard, praying in front of a heart tree. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if John felt like that's where he needed to go to really commune with, with his gods. And he needed to be there to finally be able to let it all out. And he kind of does, silently, yeah. uh, but he does. And so I think that might have been a reason as well. While they were there, they should have grabbed a couple of acorns. And brought them back so they could create their own damn weirwood grove. Why hasn't anyone, Why hasn't anyone done yet? this? It seems ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I know we're not dealing with the sharpest people here, but come on. Somebody should figure that out. You've been around for 8,000 years and no one's thought to do this yet? My, I, I love your reasons. Uh I, I, I thought of, of the first one you gave. My other reason is... I think he I think he really believes that with ghosts heightened sentences that that they're not in danger that ghosts will be able to tell them when there's a problem to alert them sure to that he, that, that I, he has a confidence and maybe it's not even confidence maybe it's a test will they stay away if ghost is around and he can sense them right mm-hmm I don't. It's almost like a uh, to to extend it even further. John is he says it in this chapter at some point that he feels even while they're awake sometimes that they're they're one and the same, and it's almost like he's just so confident in his ability to be one with that wolf that he'll know what's coming at all times, and that that gives the whole mission of sending these guys up there an advantage that they wouldn't have if he stayed. So mm -hmm. it's not like a one-to-one -one comparison of like, oh, I could just send Bo, and it's like, no, it's, I, I give the party, you know, ten times the chances of being successful than if Bowen went, right? Right, yep. But I don't know. And on that note, I, I like that. And sometimes I wonder if Ghost, do you think Ghost is conscientious of <laughs> this connection like John is? Uh, the quote is, of late, John sometimes felt as if he and the dire wolf were one, even awake. The hints are very strong, if not explicitly stated, people that Jon Snow is skin-changing into wolf or ghost without knowing it, right? Is it fair to say that? 
I think so. Is that a spoiler? No, I, I, if he, mm-hmm. he says it in this chapter that he feels like they were they were one and the same sometimes, even while they were awake. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I wonder if if Ghost runs off because John's like Ghost just runs off and he does his thing, and I know he'll come back, but I don't even try to call him back anymore. I wonder if Ghost like recognizes that this relationship exists as well, and he's going off to scout yeah. and look for danger. Knowing that John will, without knowing, skin change into him and be aware of danger potentially. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost like an immediate form of communication where Ghost doesn't even have to see danger and run back to warn John. It's like he's extending John's sight outward yeah. to wherever Ghost is. Yeah. And that's why he he always leaves when they get beyond the wall. I've said this before. I don't remember what it was exactly. There's a, a chapter probably in the last book uh, wherein John's dreaming and I, I can't remember exactly what happens, but I, I, the way I put it when I was just talking about it was that Ghost was kind of egging him along. Like, come on, follow me. You can do this. Come with me. I'm going to run free at night. Mm-hmm. Come with me. I, and I don't remember exactly how, how that scene went or why I put it that way. But, yeah, sometimes it feels like Ghost is kind of dragging John along. Like, come on, man. You're capable of doing mm-hmm. more here. I'm going to help you out. And yet at some point... I, I, even in this chapter, it's like, oh, he was just frolicking around in the snow. Oh, God, he loves snow. What a cute little pup. You know, like, he almost seems mm-hmm. the opposite. Like, he's just completely unaware of of any of it. Like, he's not a sophisticated animal. Um, so it, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting mix. I think I still side with Ghost is trying to bring John along. Because John doesn't have time to develop yeah. this, and Ghost knows what he's capable of. And, yeah. We talk about Roose Bolton being patient. Yeah. <laughs> that ghost. Uh, tenderhearted Stannis is my favorite Stannis. <laughs> but but I don't want but I don't want more of it, Matt, because more of it would just ruin the novelty. You need those tenderhearted Stannis <laughs> moments to be few and far between. Yeah, you just yeah, you need to make them special. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I I understand. I just you know you know how I love Stannis so. Uh, how great of him! You mean that you don't? <laughs> oh, Stannis and I have a complicated relationship. <laughs> I think Stannis and everyone, other than maybe maybe Beefish, have a complicated relationship. Uh. He, he he's like I'll save her if I can, and I'll give her a better marriage. Like don't get too excited. I'm still controlling this whole situation. Yeah, we're still gonna marry her off, uh, yeah. you know, in an advantageous way. Yeah. But, which, let's be honest, would have happened regardless, yeah. probably. But um, sure, it'll just be a southern lord instead of a northern one. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Stannis. Yeah, uh, you got much else here? I don't. Okay, let's move on to Danny Six from A Dance with Dragons. That's my summary. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking it with the dragon kids and Jorothy. And does she know just where she gotta go and won't be Tyrion? Look how Westerosi comes, Daenerys Targaryen. Daenerys Targaryen fears not the Pale Mare. She rides out with 60-ish men to distribute food to the masses huddled outside her walls. And why should she fear? 
She had never been sick in her life. Dragons aren't vulnerable to sickness. The Astapori, though, are in rough shape. Sick, starving, more of them seemingly arriving every day. They've eaten any animals that they brought with them, and have started even feasting on their own dead. These are a people in need of help, and Danny's guilt is palpable. The food carts from Marine are no longer even safe. Some being attacked, other drivers succumbing to the disease just by delivering food to the Astapori. Danny decides that while she cannot heal them or give more food that will be needed for the upcoming siege, she can at least show that she cares. She bathes a sick man with seawater, and with the help of someone sullied, among others, burns the Astapori dead. The dead burned and the survivors encouraged to bathe. Danny returns to Marine to get herself clean and discuss the impending wedding with the Green Grace and Resnack Mo Resnack. A weird combo that must represent a knowledge of culture of the Marinese, I guess? Question mark? Anyway, you guys know the story here. Different sides of every wedding have different traditions and they bicker and argue over who details get what details. Anyway... Lastly, they ask her to reopen the fighting pits as a wedding gift to Hizdar. She's worried about all this stuff. All these traditions she doesn't want to follow, the fighting pits, all this stuff. But she had no need to worry, really. Because Hizdar thinks all these traditions are garbage. And is willing to sweep them all aside. He also brings the terms from the Yunkai. They want payment of money for the inconvenience they've suffered from the disrupted trade of slaves. They want Yunkai and Astapor to be able to practice the slave trade unmolested for Marine, and they want Hisdar to be king alongside her as queen. Now, Danny is young, but she knows she's being manipulated. Regardless, we don't get to hear her response, because the dinner is interrupted. Barristan reporting that the Stormcrows have returned from the field, and Dario is here to see her. Danny dismisses Hisdar as courteously as her excited disposition can manage, and hastily dresses up, for Dario. When he presents himself to her, he does so covered in blood. Not his, but still, it gets Danny's heart racing. The Stormcrows barely escaped the company of the cat as they raced home to Marine. Most of the news he has is news we already know from Quentin's account. But we do learn that the Westerosi Windblown, the quadruple U's, as I will call them from now on, have come over as planned, and that the Stormcrows' numbers went up, not down, despite the carnage going on in the field. We also learn that Brown Ben Plum and the Second Sons have turned cloak yet again. Ben, who came up with a plan to invade Marine. Ben, whom the dragons trusted. Ben, who claimed to have a drop of Targaryen in himself. Was this one of her three betrayals? Amidst the chaotic reaction in her court to this news, Danny orders food to be gathered in the city, and the gates to the city closed, the Astapori condemned outside them. Everyone is dismissed, everyone but teen heartthrob Dario. His wounds are cleaned and dressed, but before they can get him to bathe, he kisses Danny. And her heart flutters like a swarm of goddamn butterflies. She makes Dario promise to never leave her. He does. She confesses that she has always wanted him. He knows. But that she was always hesitant. He was a treacherous sellsword and bragged of having a hundred women. A thousand, he replies. But never a dragon. What are you waiting for? And of course, then we must assume that he took her. 
Bow, chicka, bow, bow. Oh, Danny, 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 Danny. Oh, no, good for her. This has been building for far too long. She was a young girl and alone, and young girls can change their minds. <laughs> I wrote the same thing. Uh, I've got the same <laughs> note. Uh, Danny has seen her future, and it is no fun. Time to have some, right? Just get it out, yeah. Uh, you know, why not? Look, why not? I make I make these proclamations all the time when I feel a little uncomfortable. Danny is underage. We know that. Uh, different world, different times, etc. Regardless, this person is somebody that has enjoyed sex lots of times with a man-child. Uh, you know, call us our leader. She's missing it, right? Like. She wants to have sex. As you do. As you do. As she you wants do. to have sex. She sees her future with this lame Hisdar guy. And you know what? She's intrigued by Dario. I, you know, I don't even... I, I don't understand it. I don't understand the <laughs> no, intrigue. No, me neither. But just like I don't understand my wife's apparent intrigue with me. The heart wants what but, it wants, Matt. You know? And... Yep. Uh, I I use I th- I feel like when I used to read this chapter I was like what are you doing, but now I'm like mm-hmm. you get yours, go for it, <laughs> go for it. Who cares? You know, why not? Yep. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm not a Dario fan, but you know she is. No, so it'd be interesting to see what the future wants. holds for him, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he seems he seems loyal, seems interested, um, Twitter pated, maybe. I don't know. Uh, hmm. Yeah, hard to know. I guess what's going on in his head. We don't have his POV. Yeah, because the other side of it could just be very deep notch in his bedpost, right? Just. I like how you use the word deep there, Matt. Mm. Mother of Dragons. <laughs> what do you think of this uh, this Targaryen's Never Sick thing? Or did you want to, was that something you wanted to talk about in Davos After Dark? I don't remember. No, we can talk about it. We have nothing to back it up. No. <laughs> so. Uh, no, I mean, I can, I can never remember being sick is as I grow yeah. older and get sick all the goddamn time. I'm like, oh. That's something, because I remember being sick lots of times. Uh, And I'm reminded of the movie Unbreakable. Did you see Unbreakable? Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, I like that I'm a fan of it as well. A big fan of it. I'm I'm still still a fan of of that director, despite some of the films he's put out recently. But um, he, he has that same thing. He says, I've never been sick in the... The, the boss, he tells him this. I've never... When was the last time I took a sick day? And the boss goes and looks. And he's like, you've never taken one. Fine, you can have a raise. <laughs> thinks, thinks he's just using mm. it as leverage for more money. Uh, mm. I have never taken a sick day. <laughs> exactly. It's a Dwight Schrute thing. Yeah. You work here. Don't you want good insurance? Don't need it. Never been sick. Perfect immune system. Okay, well, if you've never been sick, then you don't have any antibodies. I don't need them. Superior genes. I'm a shrewd. And superior brain power. Through concentration, I can raise and lower my cholesterol at will. Why would you want to raise your cholesterol? So I can lower it. Totally is a Dwight, Dwight Schrute thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But 
okay, can't burn, maybe. Uh, can't get sick, maybe. I mean, she certainly doesn't seem afraid of getting sick. Right. Here's here's my problem with it. Is that even if you feel like you can't get <laughs> Everyone sick... Everyone else can. You're taking all yeah. of your freaking trusted advisors and people who are close to you and loyal to you, and you are exposing them to that. And they're not Targaryens. Yeah. They can get sick. Do you really want Barristan Selmy and your blood riders and these people who have your backs in a place where not many people have your backs to get this and die? Like, come on, Daddy. Yeah. This is scary. Yeah. I, on, on one side, she's leading by example. Like John Like did. John did, like the episode implies. But, mm-hmm. yeah, on the other side, it's reckless. Reckless. Uh, totally. I mean... Maybe not from her perspective, but, you know, they, they say this sometimes. I remember my my favorite soccer player, uh, his name is Precky, and I watched him all growing up and, and love. I patterned my whole game after him and how he played. And, uh, and uh, I remember after he retired, he was going to coach. And people were like, you know, I remember reading one post on a, on a little forum. is like, the problem is... He was so good that he's not going to understand when people can't do what he does. Mm. He'll come up to a situation. He'll be like, you just need to do this. And they're like, I can't do that. And he'll be like, why not? Just do this. And yeah, so what if you can't get sick? Your people will. <laughs> this right. is this is not a good thing for you to do. And what, I mean, not to second guess her because it's a tough situation, but... Yeah, yes, what she is. needed to do was appoint some Astapori generals or leaders of some kind and say, look, there's benefit in this for you if you follow my orders, and this is what you need to do. You need to get the bodies. You need to have the families take the bodies. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Right? And burn them and let them take care of it. And then reward those people with power and with prestige and with, you know, whatever, position. And slowly you can turn these Astapori into some sort of a benefit instead of a liability. Right. And if you as this ruler get the flux yourself, we appoint another person. Yep. I appreciate what she's trying to do, and the parallels between this chapter and the John chapter are striking. I like that the reading order yes, put the two I of them back it. to back. I don't know if that was intentional. But I love it. Her going out into a dangerous situation, just like John going beyond the wall. Um, her trying to take care of a people who she could, you know, in her position, reasonably justify ignoring, like John does with the free folk and trying to strengthen them. Uh, it's really quite shocking. And we defended John just now going out there, or I don't know if we defended him, but we were able to give some pretty good justification for him wanting to go beyond the wall. And I realize I'm not really doing that with Danny now. I don't know if it just seems like the stakes are a lot higher or what. Well, the stakes are higher. There's also at least more immediate. There's also a difference. Um, you know, one John, like I pointed out, John felt like by going, he gave the mission an advantage. Um, uh-huh. And perhaps with ghost, with ghost yeah. perhaps Danny by going gives the mission an advantage if she doesn't bring everyone of value along with her. Right, but she did. Grey Worm, get down in here and do this, buddy. Yeah. 
Yeah. My goodness. They're not fighting wildlings or others. They're fighting disease. And the more people you bring, the more risk. I mean, literally, if you brought two people, it would be safer than bringing 50. One of those 50 gets infected, and you're bringing it back with you. They go back into the city. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and that's true. You know, if they get attacked by wildlings or even others, they stand a chance to defeat them beyond the wall. They're yes, Night's Watchmen, they can fight. They don't even. If you yeah. get the flux, you don't even know you're done. fighting when you when it takes you. Yeah, yeah. you're yeah. done. Yep. I I don't even I don't even mean this to be an attack on Danny. I, I don't think she, she was trying mm-hmm. to operate from a position yes. of compassion. Yes. She mm-hmm. certainly felt she guilt. Cares. She cares, yeah. and she's overpowered by yeah. guilt. Absolutely, yeah. mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting difference between John and Danny. One of again, I've said this several times as we've done gone through this cast. One of my favorite things about this reread has been comparing these two as grown grown as yep. leaders and their differences. Um, it's a difference. She has compassion for everyone. He is more about the hard choice, and she can make some hard choices too. I don't mean to shortchange her, but she's just got a big heart. And it gets in her way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think John has that too. But like you said, he's got kind of that stark steeliness that uh, yeah, that Edard had. And... But at the same time, not. I mean, he, the easiest thing to do, he even said it in this last chapter, the easiest thing to do would have been to burn all those wildlings. And he says it. He's like, maybe they were right. Maybe I should have just done that. Right? Kill them all. Mm-hmm. And but he didn't. His heart told him no. Right? I mean, they're not that different. These two. And yeah, we've talked about that through this whole reread. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's one of my favorite things. It's fascinating. Uh, let's see. Uh, one one quick thing while we're talking about the disease mm-hmm. and everything, uh, and the and the mm-hmm. poor conditions of the mer- of the Astapori. George, uh, we don't maybe give him enough credit when we should. Just an incredible ability to just take a moment and create an image that sticks with you. This rat stick boy. Yeah, the one who is, uh, for those who aren't exactly reading along with us, he's eating a rat with one hand and holding a knife out with another. Is that the one you're referring to? Yeah, except it's not a knife. It's a sharpened stick. And, yeah, I mean, you can just picture this boy with a swollen belly, you know, eight years old maybe, just kind of... Territory, territorially just defending himself, you know, shaking the stick out in front of him, guarding all angles, you know, while biting into this rat. Like, it's just an image that I can't get out of my head now. I I can this see it so clearly. This was a hard chapter for me to read. Yeah. yeah. This was a hard chapter for me to yeah. read. Yeah. He's brilliant at setting an, an atmosphere yeah. for a chapter. I thought he did that really well in the John chapter, too. Um talking about the surroundings and stuff like that, the pink light on the snow and everything. Mm-hmm. And he does it here. Oh, beautifully. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you ever negotiated with someone, Matt, that's just super eager to get the deal done? Just willing to give up just whatever, so long as the deal gets done? I feel like I'm that guy. <laughs> well, it probably depends on the situation. In this case, it's it's his dar, right? Uh-huh. Give up the traditions, give up everything. Just, just make me, just, just marry me. Just let's do this. Whatever right. I have to give up, you know what? I'll bathe you. Whatever. Let's do it now. 
Mm-hmm. It's not a, definitely a sense of urgency there. Usually when somebody, when the seller has a sense of urgency, it's because you're getting a lemon. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yep. And meanwhile, Danny's trying to hold on to whatever authority that she can, even down to like the wedding rituals, yes. right? She's like, I can't, I feel like she's feels like she's losing control over everything, but I can at least, I can at least have some pull in these rituals. <laughs> yeah. And she holds on to him, but uh, yeah, his dar, he wants this thing done and, and moving along and you get the feeling that it's not because he's in love with her. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty convenient that Hisdar has all the contacts outside of Marine, and those people, those contacts also happen to want him in charge. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and Danny's not stupid; she sees it. <laughs> she's like, "You, mm-hmm. you just—that's why she's so yeah, frustrated." What can she do? She knows what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, what she could do is leave. We've talked about that before. Three ways out of every room, right? Yeah. Oh, that's that song. Who was it again? Mm-hmm. Uh, Oasis, right? Yeah. No, no it was not Oasis. <laughs> the Wallflowers. Yeah, those guys. <laughs> yeah. They're both bigger than the Beatles, so I don't know why it matters. Oh, hugely. <laughs> Bigly. Uh... There's a line in there. Uh, what good are prophecies if you cannot make sense of them? Mm-hmm. We've talked about this a little bit before. I feel like Danny is just haunted by the prophecies she's been given. Um, we'll get seriously next chapter. Um, right. Yeah. Haunted by her own prophecies. This book is filled with them in general, prophecies. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like maybe this is... Uh, this is perhaps the most important lesson about prophecies, this this one line. What good are they if you can't make sense of them? If you're given information about about your future and you can't even tell what it's telling you, move on. Yeah, and that might be easier said than done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the prophecy in and of itself can't affect you. Like they're just words that have been spoken at you. Right? The trouble that Danny and Cersei go through is that they dwell on it and they're trying to, they're constantly trying to fulfill it themselves in some way or forcing their thoughts and beliefs onto this prophecy and fit it into the boundaries that the prophecy set. When in reality, it's just been words that have been spoken at you and stay in the present, like you said, let it go. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, work your way through your own destiny well it's it's interesting uh, we have a few different views of prophecy in this book um in general and i'm i'm very i'm, I'm departing from this chapter now but you know jojen thinks of of the prophecy and the visions he has as fixed and not changeable immutable uh melisander for certain says at some point yeah yeah they can be changed otherwise why show them to me um danny here is saying i can't even make sense of them what am i supposed to do about this just kind of waiting powerlessly as they come. Oh, I'm going to have three treasons, I guess. I'll just try to determine when they happen. So she falls more on the Jojen's. Kind of in between, maybe. Maybe maybe not that she can't 
she doesn't think she can't influence them, but just she doesn't see them happening, and so she has no power. And then you get Kyburn in the next chapter with Cersei saying, yeah, of course, of course you can change it. You know what to do. Just do it. You, the, the power is completely yours. Um, you know, so it's a very, it's, it's a very uh, mixed line on, on the opinions of prophecy in this book. It's, it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you go back to the phrase that's repeated in these books of words or wind, but yet. <laughs> is that a, is that a fray you, phrase? I don't know if it's phrase. Oh, I thought you, I thought that's what you said. Sorry. Maybe I misheard you. No, it's, it's a phrase oh. that's just repeated constantly throughout the books. Yes. Um, and so it's interesting to contrast that with these people who are driving themselves crazy at certain times yeah. by these words. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, if if some sort of apparition is mouthing the words to you, maybe you'd be less apt to take them as wind. But yeah, overall, the point is made. It's They're just words. Go change it. You make your own fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And yet, when Malara falls down a well, it's like, wow, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, what else you got for this chapter? (coughs) Yeah. Yeah. You got anything else for this chapter? Just the quick call out that, uh, it's been a while since we've heard from Quentin Martell, but, uh, we get a tiny little line indicating that his mission was successful. The quadruple use. Yeah. They infiltrated. They're in. They're, yeah, they, they're in, um, among others, probably, um, yeah, the quadruple use, the Westerosi windblown. Um, a brute bigger than Belwas, I said. So I thought of, uh, crap, I just forgot his name. Uh, Ironwood. Oh. Um, Archie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is that who they were referring to? I, I imagine it was. <laughs> just because he's such a big dude, yeah. they say. Yeah, uh, he is. So, uh, but of course, Quentin is of course the uh Sean Aston of the bunch hmm. and no one even notices him but I notice you Sean Rudy Rudy <laughs> Rudy the Rudy character was the the first guy that I like projected onto Quentin as I was reading Oh books. really? He's who I imagined that Sean Aston at that age uh, was my Quentin Martel. Yeah. He's still on my mind because he's in this latest season of Stranger Things. I've gotten in a couple episodes there. I'm, I'm, so. I still haven't even watched season one yet. I'm terrible. Well, I'm not giving away anything yeah. by it. Just saying that he's he's a character in season two. Both John Favreau and uh, and Vince Vince uh, Vaughn in in Rudy. Did you know that? I did. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Uh. A little thing, I had a question for you because I didn't get it. Uh, mm. Danny is about to go uh, see the Green Grace and Resnack Mo Resnack. And she asks for the green Tokar. And her aides inform her that no, no, that is torn and being repaired. And she says, oh, fine, the blue is fine. Again, I'm questioning a writer, and I know you don't have a direct line to 
George's brain. But why waste our time with this, these two sentences? Why not just have her ask for the blue tokar? What, what is, what's in this? What is this? The tokar gets called out a lot. It does a few times, and yeah. Not in just this chapter, but she's constantly using it as, what's the term? Floppy ears, yeah, right? Yeah, floppy ears reference. <laughs> it's, it's a symbol of uh, trappings of power, hearkening back to another phrase in the books. Um, so this is a long-winded way of me saying I don't know but that it's interesting that the Tokar is constantly brought up and kind of focused on just enough that you go, can I really ignore this? Is this really just a passing thing? Absolutely. I mean, just, I think I've said this before, but just as, as somebody that's talked to my sister about her writing, you know, not just on the comic side, but on the novel side, it's just like every sentence is carefully chosen. I don't see a right. reason to mention a green Tokar that's ripped that she can't wear. It doesn't give anything. Yeah, it's the green grace. So maybe, again, hearkening back to the floppy ears, she thought that the green tokar would honor the green grace, you know, with the matching color. But that's as far as I got. Okay, I'll buy that. In the meantime, I'm going to go to a search of ice and fire and search for green tokar and see what else I find. See if they go. even mention it being ripped or something. Uh, but let's let's move on. What else you got for this chapter? Um, that is about it. I, I did like the line, no ruler can make a people good. I thought that's very insightful. Um, a lot of good one-liners in this episode, but, uh, I think that's all I've there got. There are a few. Yeah. Good, good one-liners. Um, another story I'll skip. The relation isn't that good. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, I think we got everything I had. Um, oh, just a little subtle thing. Danny, in, in addition to thinking some of these traditions are ridiculous, also simply doesn't want her womb to be inspected. <laughs> and, and, and it's a good... She's like, this isn't happening. <laughs> and And it's a good thing she has a history of, you know, disagreeability and... Well, I suppose feminism or freedom, I don't know, not, you know, anti-Maronese culture, that they don't really call her on it because they're just like, oh, well, she's just being disagreeable again. But, yeah, mm -hmm. she's, she's able to get away with, uh, you know, this hiding the fact that her womb is maybe inhospitable. Yeah, she's she's definitely, I think, worried that they'll find something there. Yeah. That backs up what Miri Mazdur said about her being, you know, barren at, at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, and that would make her a less ideal match or maybe change their minds. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, let us move on then uh, to Cersei, your chapter. Let's do it. Alluring eyes can get the guys with promises, lies, then cast aside. Can't she be the man she thinks her family needs? One brother she hates, with the other she mates. Those debts can she repay, Cersei Lannister. News from the front lines. Dragonstone has been taken. As Arain Waters, who's just returned, reports, the castle is now theirs, but not 
without cost. Of the thousand or so dead after the battle, most were sworn to the crown, and most were knights and hardcore soldiers. Dead in the full frontal assault, Loras had ordered only hours after arriving at Dragonstone. Remember, the reason Loras had volunteered to oversee the attack in the first place was to get it over and done with so he could take the fleet to combat the Ironborn who were raiding in his homeland of the Reach. Now, Loras himself may not be participating in that campaign, however, as he was gravely injured to the point that waters seem certain the Knight of Flowers will not survive. He is dead. Uh, the first one through the breach, Loris reportedly took two crossbow bolts through thigh and shoulder, a mace blow to the ribs, and a dousing of boiling oil. Yeah. So, uh, way to way to take it and keep on kicking, I guess. Uh, Cersei, pleased as my son at the Transformers Five premiere. <laughs> outwardly expresses sorrow and volunteers for the heart-wrenching task of reporting the news to Marjorie. When Cersei does go to Marjorie and states to her that Loras will have died saving the realm, Marjorie retorts that dying is not dead and kicks Cersei out of her presence. Go Marge. Uh, but Cersei, it's hard to even relish in, in Marjorie's, uh, kicking her out because Cersei's so pleased. She doesn't even mind. She doesn't even care. The next day dawns with the most beautiful sunrise Cersei had seen in a long time, followed by her usual day of turning away dwarves' heads, who are not Tyrion's, and otherwise dashing the hopes and dreams of her petitioners. Of particular note on this day is a delegation from the Faith, headed up by Septon Reynald and flanked by six of the warrior's sons. The reason they came is to urge the crown to outlaw prostitution in King's Landing. Cersei turns them down, obviously, pointing out the economic advantage of having brothels, especially in a port, in a port city. But the important item to note in this exchange is the mention of the growing number of armed warriors' sons. Remember, these. this is the militant branch of the faith that she'd permitted to be restored. There's way more than she'd expected. Hmm, okay. <laughs> Anyways, that night, uh, we get into Cersei's head. She, she dreamt an old dream, it says, of three girls in brown cloaks, a wattled crone, and a tent that smelled of death. That's a quote from the book. Now, Cersei had been just a young girl as she and her two maids, Jane Farman and Malara Heatherspoon, went to see a rumored fortune teller who was called Maggie the Frog. Quote, short squat and warty with pebbly greenish jowls her teeth were gone you could smell sickness on her if you stood too close and when she spoke her breath was strange and strong and foul so despite their repulsion at her appearance and their anxiety regarding this whole situation in general the girls rudely oust the old woman from her bed and demand she look into their futures just as an aside, Jane Farman uh, flees from the tent when she does wake up, but Cersei and Malara stayed. Uh, Cersei reflects that Jane happens to be alive and well today, married with a dozen children. 
Now, anyways, so Maggie the frog wakes up, and after some coaxing, she directs Cersei to prick her finger with a knife, after which Maggie tastes the blood from Cersei's finger. Maggie then states that she can answer three questions that Cersei asks of her. Question one, when will she wed the prince? Now, by prince, Cersei means Prince Rhaegar. Maggie answers that she will never wed the prince, but she will wed the king. Slightly confused at this, Cersei asks if she would be the queen. And Maggie answers yes, until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all that you hold dear. Mm. Cersei declares her brother will kill anyone who tries and asks if she and the king will have children. Maggie answers yes, 16 for him and three for her. Then she says, gold shall be their crowns and gold their shrouds. And when your tears have drowned you, the Valonqar shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. Well, heaven forbid that the fortune she asked for isn't full of yachts and summer homes, and the annoyed Cersei tries to leave. But first, Malara insists that she get her fortune told too, blurting out her first question. Will I marry Jamie? <laughs> hard, hard no, answers Maggie, who reveals that Malara will die before she marries. Uh, with that, the uh, dickhead girls throw some of Maggie's own potion into her face and run off. Solid now, Cer- yeah, right? That's what you do. Uh, Cersei snapped out of her dream just as she's dreaming of Tyrion wrapping her ha- his hands around her and choking the life from her. So the next morning, she asks Kyburn uh, and starts talking to him about her dream, about Maggie and the prophecies and how some of them have already come true, including the fact that Malara had fallen down a well to her death not long after the prophecy was given. Can these prophecies be averted, she asks. And hearkening back to what Scad already reminded us of, Kyburn um, says that yes, they can be averted, and she knows how they can be averted. Wink, wink. Cersei's thoughts immediately go to Marjorie, who she is positive is the queen younger and more beautiful that Maggie had mentioned. Obviously, has to be Marjorie. Deciding it would be too difficult to outright kill Marjorie, she starts formulating a plan to frame her in such a way that even her own father will have no choice but to agree to her execution. So the next day, she asks Ser Osmond whether his brother Osney could defeat Sir Boris Blunt in combat? Well, that's kind of a, just an out there question. <laughs> but regardless, <laughs> Osmond answers, Boros the belly? He's what, 40, 50? Half drunk half the time? Fat even when he's sober? If he ever had a taste for battle, he's lost it. I, your grace, if Sir Boros wants for killing, Osney could do it easy enough. Why? Has Boros done some treason? No, Cersei answers. But Osney has. And that's the end of the chapter. Matt, I don't think it's a weird question at all. My kids ask who would win between Batman and Iron Man all the time. Cersei's <laughs> probably just curious who would win between Osney and Boris Blunt. Let me ask you a question here. 
<laughs> what if what if they ha- couldn't wear armor? Boros and, and Osni, who wins? What if what if what if they each had a hand behind their back? <laughs> what if they had to get drunk first? Ditka versus the Hurricane, <laughs> who would win? Ditka. The name of the hurricane. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. The name of the hurricane. The name of the hurricane is Hurricane Ditka. 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 <laughs> oh, our foreign listeners are so confused. Uh, and anyone Farley, under the Saturday age of thirty-five, probably. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm not thirty-five yet. Yeah, well, you're wise beyond your years. There's a lot here um, in this chapter. Well, we have got uh, we've we've this this um, I was about to say dream, but this happening in Cersei's history it seems to not just be a dream; it seems to be a memory of something that actually happened. In fact, it was. She points back to you know Malara falling down the well and everything like that. So we know this occurred. Um, it's been we've gotten hints of it throughout these books, right? Especially recently. And now we finally get the whole tale of Maggie, the frog. And does this explain now why Cersei acts the way she acts, especially towards Tyrion? It's a complicated question. Uh, I think it, I think it adequately, adequately supplies a base for her paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it excuses nor informs on all of her actions. <laughs> Definitely doesn't excuse. Um, but uh, but sure, I, I feel uh, you know I, she. So she has. <laughs> so I don't want to go into all of it because it's probably dad territory. Some of it, but there are lots of interpretations of of the way you can take what what she heard as a child. Um, and, and, and bend it and meld it to something that means something to you. Now we should mm-hmm. remember Cersei's, I don't even know how old she is now, 32 or something. Yeah. Early thirties. Early thirties. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So she's 32 now. This happened when she was, God, I'm terrible. 15, 12. was it? 12. Okay. 12. So mm-hmm. it's been a while. I mean, Matt, how well do you remember things from, you know, 22 years ago or, or whatever? Yeah, you you kind of start to uh, you forget. fill in details. Yeah, yeah. you fill in details. Uh, one of the things I learned in business a, a long time ago is the unknown gets filled in with negatives. If you don't remember things, you, they your brain tends to fill that in with negative thoughts. Um, mm. With where there's uncertainty, you fill it in with negatives, uh, unless you're a certain type of person. So, you know, this is an impression. She, she's she's clearly built from this vision. She's built. A an expectation of of events that she thinks she has to thwart in some way through her actions, and she's probably taken a, a reasonably narrow translation of that vision to directly to her heart. And does it explain why she hates Tyrion so much? Depending on the way she's translated that vision, yeah, it probably does. She feels like she was directly told that Tyrion's going to strangle her to death. <laughs> that mm. that would, if you believe in visions and 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 prophecy, that would be a pretty good reason to hate your brother. 
And that's where a prophecy becomes self-fulfilling in a sense when you yeah. allow it to, yeah. to the sense that she's so paranoid about the Valencar prophecy and about Tyrion killing her. She's constantly looking over her shoulder, right? And it influences so much of her actions and, and all the stuff that she does that to the point he is choking the life out of her. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting how the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy and you fulfill it in your own way, uh, depending on the focus you put towards it. Yeah. There's some really interesting stuff out there about this. I, I remember, I won't, I won't do the whole conversation justice, but I remember talking with, uh, on Reddit, I believe it's, it's glass table girl, um, Eliana, who I went to the, uh, uh, ice and fire con with, um, talking about how the prophecy kind of cheapens, Cersei's path because everything that she needs to be this paranoid and to, um, you know, to have these feelings and these behaviors and the way she acts, it's all within her character. She doesn't need the prophecy to have to have gotten here. It's it's an interesting argument. Uh, look her stuff up. Uh, she's a brilliant a brilliant woman and uh, has some cool thoughts on this. But um, yeah, the, I, I think it, it, it's it's somewhat in line with the self fulfilling prophecy idea. Um, in some ways directly in contrast to it, but also in line with it, that she has this idea or these fears and she's just, her whole life rolls in lockstep with it. Mm -hmm. This this is something I've been told. I have to fight against it my whole life. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Then you've got Pycelle's, um response to the whole prophecy thing. Should our morrows be foretold? And to that, I should answer no. Some doors are best left closed. <laughs> you know, Pycelle's a, a funny guy. You kind of, the first few books, you kind of grow to hate him. And mm -hmm. then as soon as he's in opposition to Cersei, you kind of like him. Yeah, it's, not a, it's not a bad bit of wisdom there. Yeah, this counsel he's giving isn't so bad. It's like, you know what? Better not to worry about these things. Control your day. Live your life. Doc Brown would agree with you. Doc Brown for sure would. Yeah. <laughs> Doc, about the future. No! Marty! We've already agreed that having information about the future could be extremely dangerous. Even if your intentions are good, it can backfire drastically. Yeah, except he wore the bulletproof vest, so... He did, yeah. A bit of a hypocrite, but... Um, In the end, he did, yeah. yeah. Yep. Wow, I can't believe we just went that deep on Back to the Future just completely off the cuff. <laughs> That's like amazing. That's like, if anyone's looking for the definition of our podcast, there it was. Jeez. <laughs> uh, 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 what else What else do you want to go through here? Um, just an interesting callback. Uh, Kyburn actually makes the connection between the name Maggie to... Magi. <sighs> Magi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who's a in these books and and throughout lore and everything is a practitioner of blood magic. Yeah. Um so just an interesting callback to the role of blood magic in these books and mm -hmm. how it seems to infiltrate all different cultures and all the different kind of societies from the north over to Essos to yeah. now here. And it's I'm fascinated to Valyria fascinated to learn more about how this is maybe potentially 
influencing everybody in its own way. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I can't. Uh, I, I think I had this in the dad notes, but there's probably no reason we can't talk about it here. Um, either Kyburn or Pycelle, I can't remember which, uh, says says that about blood magic being the most powerful kind. And I started thinking about that line. I'm like, is there any other kind in this world? It mm-hmm. feels like all the magic is summoned by blood. Yeah, it, that's a conclusion that I've come to lately is that, and I think maybe we've mentioned this briefly, is that we talk about all these different magics from all the different parts of the world. Is it yeah. all the same magic? Maybe. Yeah, that's the whole just Azor Ahai thing again. And yeah, 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 right. Different stories told different ways, but it's really the same. You got the 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 heart trees and the the blood spill yeah. that we talked about. This is all dad stuff, I guess. Now I probably shouldn't go too far into it, but yeah, I mean, it all it all feels somewhat driven by by blood in some way. Some sort of uh, life must pay for uh, death must pay for life kind of thing. It's interesting. Yeah. 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 We are verging awfully close to dad territory here. Do you have very, anything you want to cover before we just dive into it? Uh, common men deprived of horrors turn to rape. Discuss. This is uh, uh, a, a, a far exaggeration of what we're dealing with today with all of the Hollywood stuff coming out. Uh, yeah, you got the Harvey Weinstein and... Kevin Weinstein, Spacey and Spacey and if everyone, I, I think I saw Dustin Hoffman the other day. I mean, it, it seems like it's everybody. I mean, man, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, yeah, I don't know what to say, but I, I guess, <laughs> I, I guess, I guess the, the comment in trouble. <laughs> I know. I don't, well, I don't want to, I don't want to create any trouble. I don't really even mean to say anything that's that, that astounding or stirring to anyone. Just, the the sense that Cersei gives here is, oh yeah, you take whores away, men are gonna rape women. That's just the way it is. It's a built-in excuse for them, like it's a boys will be boys kind of thing. Yeah, and, excuse uh, what boys it. do. Yeah, I yeah. It. yeah, it's it's, it's absolutely awful. Uh, boys, we just live in a man's world, and you know they're gonna do what they do, and nothing we can do to control it. Unless we give them yeah. these things to fill their physical appetites, yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, a couple more things you you hinted at it in your summary, but uh, Cersei's sad, quote unquote, sad demeanor is just priceless here. Oh my gosh! Oh, how sad? Tell me again, <laughs> right? That's awful. Tell me the whole thing one more time. <laughs> She's getting all titillated. Yeah, she's yeah. probably, yep, uh, aroused in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, mm-hmm. Single combat between Loras and Roland Storm would have been something I would have loved to read. Um, Roland Storm supposedly quite the handful in battle. Just one more. Oh, a little Professor Scat, a second one here. Cersei kind of jokingly... I don't know if she's joking, I guess. She mentions, how many dwarves are there out there? She's <laughs> like, God, everybody comes here. How many are there? Well, in our world, one out of 30,000 or so. Really? That's that's what it said. It's interesting. The stats are, it was like one out of every 26 to 40,000. So I, <laughs> I just made that 30 to be round. It's, a, it's weird that they don't have the stats. I assume that must be because 
the percentages vary across the world and thinking, ability yeah, to report accurately and, and yeah, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. So I made it easy at one out of every 30,000 or so. Um, but, you know, that's quite a few. Yeah. So. Yeah, when you consider 7 billion people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, mm-hmm. I, I've never, I don't know if anyone's done like a how many people are in Westeros kind of study. Sure. It probably has, but I don't know it. Um, uh, the last thing I really had was uh, Meriwether. And uh, just, she's interesting. She's with Cersei, she's with Marjorie. Is she playing? I don't know. She she certainly seems to know how to play Cersei just right, telling oh, yeah. her things that she wants to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, I think that's all I got. Me I too. A, I had a Macbeth thing, but it's weak. All my stuff is all my comparisons are weak this time. Sorry, Calisar. Weak as you want it to be, buddy. Um, Loras, Loras being on you know death at death's door. Something we maybe shouldn't marginalize here. Yeah. Uh, this guy is very important to the Tyrell family. Um, he's very important as a protector to Marjorie. Um, you know, reading some of Cersei's thoughts in the in A Feast for Crows, we get the impression that he is a constant barrier that stands in that kind of keeps Cersei in check mm-hmm. from doing something against Marjorie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um and now that he's out of the picture, that's that's fairly significant. Um you've got Garland mm-hmm. and Willis who are apparently taking care of the Ironborn yeah. threat in the Reach. And well, that Willis, leaves Marjorie extremely just, exposed. Willis is just writing a second novel. But Garland is yeah, Garland's doing stuff. Yeah, we we get the impression that uh, Willis <laughs> is leading from the rear. <laughs> I have no, uh, hey, no evidence Oberyn. of that. It's just our hey, worst joke. Yeah. <clears throat> He's uh, still in mourning, maybe? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, um, go ahead. But yeah, that's it. All right, well, I think uh, let's move now into the Davos After Dark territory then. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, everybody. Kalasar, for joining us as always. We are about to uh, about to go into spoiler territory, so if you don't want that, if you're reading along at our pace and you don't want to be spoiled, jump off now and join us, not in three weeks, but in a couple months, uh, <laughs> and we will come back with episode 66 uh, for your listening pleasure. So with that, we will jump into the Davos after the dark. Davos after dark. Okay. Well, let's let's jump right into Loras, real quick. I don't even remember if we if I highlighted that we talk about it, but uh, I we've will... been putting it off. Yeah, we have been for like now. We can, so. yeah, maybe I didn't <laughs> highlight it, but 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 I can cheat by 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 coming at it like this: the younger, more beautiful possibilities. So you'll be displaced by someone. Uh, will I be queen? Yes queen until one younger and more beautiful comes to take all that you hold dear i think is what it is or or very close to that yeah yeah and one of the interesting things is that if you read that text closely it doesn't say necessarily 
that the person that steals what she has will be a queen. Will be a queen. Yep. It's a, it's like one of those. So uh, Cersei will be a queen. Yep. Right. But it's it's one of those uh, dot dot dot. What do they call those things again? Ellipsis. Uh, ellipsis. Yep. Uh, it's one of those ellipsis, and then it says, "Until one more, until one younger and more beautiful." And so Loras could be that person. He could. He could. I don't think he probably is, but he mm-hmm. could. Assuming he's alive, right? Uh, do you think he isn't? I've read things online. People think he. Yeah, you know what? He played his role, and he's probably done. He's but, done. You think I, so? I th- no, oh. no. I absolutely think he's okay. Yeah. He pulled the wool over the eyes, and he's in Dragonstone. I don't know, fortifying the place, looking for dragon eggs. I don't know, but doing something, doing something. there. Yeah. Or or maybe even took a ship, a ship with the red wines out, out back to Old Town, although I doubt it, or, or, or back to the Reach. I doubt it, though. I, I think probably it's something more targeted than that. Um, I don't know Which exactly is probably how. hard for him, because I do think he wants to get to the Reach Very and much. participate yeah. in the battle, but if he is wanting to play this game where... You know, he can operate a lot more freely if he's thought to be dead. He can do a lot of different things if Cersei's dismissed him and already thinks he's gone. And so he's got to lay low Here's the thing. to preserve that. None of those wounds are fatal. Shoulder, thigh, those are, these are livable wounds. Broken ribs, come on. The only thing that's going to kill him is the boiling oil. Yes. And... I did armored, uh, shielded. I, I, I don't buy it. I don't think he's dead. I, I think most people. I don't think I'm shattering any expectations here. I don't think most people in the fandom think he's dead, but right. I certainly don't. I, I think he has a role still to play. Um, as, yeah. as I think the Tyrells have a, a still a huge role to play. Absolutely, and I think we talked about this maybe just briefly, uh, talking about Arain Waters and another dad. That I think yeah. my theory is that he's in on it as well. He's yeah, telling he the story he agreed to tell. Yeah, he disappears, and then he's waiting as well to maybe appear with Loras or without Loras, but with promises of reward from House Tyrell in any, whatever his future role is. It's a weird thing, though, too, Arain Waters. I mean, he should be allied with Stannis, uh, technically. Uh, You'd think, yeah. House uh, Valerion, right, I think? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a bastard. Right, a ba- the bastard of Driftmark. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it'd be a weird alliance for sure, but he's a bit adrift. You know, he's looking for yeah. the best deal, perhaps. So. He's, he's going to, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Anyway, let's not dodge the question anymore. Younger, more beautiful possibilities. Mm-hmm. So people, you know, it's easy to get wrapped up in the queen aspect of it. So the yeah. common uh, suspects are Marjorie and Sansa and Daenerys. Mm-hmm. Um, Ariane Martell yeah. is another one that comes up. Uh, I've even seen you know. Arya. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of it being Brienne. Yeah, I've heard that. Her name is the Beauty. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be a, a tricky way to play that in. She is um, younger. She is younger. Uh, oh. She's not more beautiful, but her nickname is the Beauty. So perhaps, or maybe it's a play on, you know, what is it really to be beautiful? Uh, a right. Deep, that, a, deep, a deeper the lesson inner from beauty George, and, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
I think it's, I can't remember, but I think it's Radio Westeros that makes the point that Maggie, or that Maggie, Maggie is described as so horrifically ugly that to her, Brienne might be beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's Radio Westeros. Yeah. Uh, You know, Maggie once was beautiful. Um, She certainly has a perspective on what beauty is. Uh, mm-hmm. That one particularly seems a little, a little bit of a stretch of an Reach. explanation, but, <laughs> uh, but, but, it, but it's not a stretch literarily to to yep. use the beauty as someone more beautiful, um, mm-hmm. and and certainly she has a beautiful interior, and so that could be explained that way as well. So I, I'm not necessarily against the theory. I don't hold to it. Um, I think it's pro- you know again literarily, arc wise. It feels like it should be somebody that has some sort of a score to settle, uh, some sort of a, a reason uh, yeah. to, to lay her low. Uh, and so I tend to lean toward Marjorie or Sansa. But, uh, you know. Yeah, I be. agree there needs to be a connection. Yeah, uh, You can't just say, oh, it's Ariane Martell because she's a queen. Like, where's the connection there? And so, yeah, there's definite Marjorie, definite Sansa, and definite Brienne, um, you know, taking all that you hold dear, mm-hmm. Jamie. Uh, yes. You know, there's... Maybe done that, right? Not not his heart, perhaps, but yeah. changed his mind about some things and, and corrupted him enough, uh, corrupted in, in the sense of, a, from a Lannister perspective, away from Cersei in the sense that she somewhat ruined their relationship because she opened his eyes. Forget yep. love and, and all the other complicated stuff. You know, she's opened his eyes enough that he's seen her for what she is. Exactly. So, so my money's on Brienne. Uh, I, don't, I don't like Brienne maybe because all, all that she holds dear is more than just Jamie. Uh, it'd have to take something with her kids. And I, I don't see Brienne. She, she doesn't wield a force behind her or a movement. It would have to be her directly taking... Mm-hmm the children away from Cersei and I don't see Brienne doing something like that. Um, so I don't, I don't love the Brienne answer, but it's possible. Um, I don't see it from Sansa directly either. Uh, Mm -hmm. Marjorie, maybe a kind of knives in the dark seas power thing as the Tyrell, you know, it's, it's more of a queen of thorns thing, maybe even than a Marjorie thing. But, um, anyway. Yeah. And my only response to that would be that to me, all that Cersei holds dear is herself. Like Matt, you didn't used to believe that. I know, and I've said that. I've admitted it recently. Yeah, you have. Yeah, a few she cares ago. about her kids to the point that her kids make her look good. Yeah, like you've, yeah, it was probably ten episodes ago where you said that, and it's hard to disagree with. I, I still feel, God, it's it's even in this in this recent Cersei chapter. I think I had a note about it. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but. Um, Maybe it's in my dad's stuff, but she talks about no harm will come to Tommen. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens, no harm will come to Tommen. Mm-hmm. You are abusing his mind daily, his emotions and his mind, making him whip another child. That's harm. Until you're he har- bleeds. You're, yeah. har- you're harming Tommen. No harm mm-hmm. will come to him. Bullshit. You just harmed him now. Yep. And and so it's it's hard not to... It's it's easy early on to be like, well, it's all for her kids. It's all for her kids. But 
uh, motivationally, I, I won't even I won't even necessarily say that it isn't for her that she thinks that she's doing it for that reason, but it's misguided at this point. The paranoia oh, yeah. and and all of that has led to a point where she's not she's not being successful at doing what she thinks she's doing for her kids, and yeah, yep. All okay, right. let's move on. Yeah. Uh, he is not what I expected. Review what's going down with Barbara Dustin and her use of Theon. Hmm. You got something here? Well, I put it in my dad notes and then realized it might be better for, you know, an episode when we get Barbara down in the crypts with Theon. We can skip it. Uh, I I mean, we can talk about it here, but it might be more poignant later on. Sure, let's skip it. Uh, Uh, Yeah. Yeah, skip it. Um... I feel like we talked about the Tyrion Tywin stuff a little bit, but we didn't talk about the Tyrion Targaryen theory. Uh, do you want to dive into that? Tyrion is Tywin's son, not you, Jamie. Not you. I just think that's ironic that I think we've already brought up the Tyrion Targaryen theory on this podcast. Uh, that if Tyrion really isn't Tywin's son, um, that could add fuel to the fire of how Jenna mentioned that Tywin didn't talk to Jenna for like six months after. <laughs> She pointed out that Tyrion is a lot like Tywin. Yeah. Um, it's like, don't say that. He's not really mine. You know, uh, the theory being, for those that aren't familiar with it, that Tyrion is uh, a bastard son of Joanna Lannister, Tywin's wife, and King Aerys. Um, there's very little evidence to actually support this theory. People point out Tyrion's mismatched eyes uh, as being a possibility there. Um, His almost white hair that leans more towards the Targaryen blonde uh, or version of hair color and not as golden blonde as Lannister's normally are. Um, Different things like that. Uh, But I just thought it was interesting to come up in light of that theory. Um, but another thing hit me with the Tyrion Targaryen theory that's changing the subject a little bit. Is there anything you wanted to add before I bring that up? From the perspective of, of, well, uh, uh, no, I, I don't think so. Not, not from that perspective. So I had my mind on it as I was reviewing the other notes and it came to me that, uh, if Targaryen, if Tyrion is a Targaryen, and Targaryens are immune to disease, as Danny suggests, then that could explain why he hasn't gotten grayscale yet. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the Tyrion-Targaryen thing is, I, I've said before, it's one of my favorite theories, and, and it isn't it isn't really because I want to believe it necessarily. It's just because I feel like the points against and for it are almost even. Sure. Yeah. There are fun things about it both ways. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of the big detractions about Tyrion Targaryen are that it it minimizes the relationship between Tyrion and his family and I, I disagree. I mean, I do too. Nurture versus nature is is what it is. I mean, he was raised with them as family and they treated him as they did for the reasons they did. Some of them maybe knew or some of them maybe didn't if he was actually a Targaryen and not a Lannister. But regardless, they treated him the way they did, and they developed the family relationships they did. That doesn't minimize any of that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I've never, I've never really hated that argument. But at the same time, I, I don't, I don't love the idea of secret Targaryens everywhere and secret dragon riders and you know 
popping up all these mysterious things at the last second to Deus Ex Machina, all of us. Right. Um, so I'm I'm really I'm really mixed about the theory in general. Um, you know how it how it applies to Jenna and her relationship with Tyrion is interesting, uh, but my sense my sense is that Tywin by that point would have been able enough to deal with the deception that it wouldn't have caused any sort of bigger rift than was mm-hmm. already being caused. Mm-hmm. Tywin's a game player. He knows how the score goes. Yeah, there's a really interesting line in there where he talks about how, or Jenna mentions how she disappointed Tywin. Yeah. And we've not really given the reason as to how or what she did to disappoint him. So that is interesting to think about their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Soured it. All right. Uh, Dario. Is he into her? Is he using her? Uh, I don't think he's into her. No? Nah. Nope. Matt, haven't you ever just been in love? I wish, man. (laughs) No, I mean, why not? Why couldn't he just be in love with her? He could. He absolutely could. Yeah. I just... He goes out and admits right to her face that he's... According to him, he's been with thousands of women. Before? And, and yeah, guys do settle down. I just need to be more... I need <laughs> to be more whimsical yeah. and romantic and Come just on, let myself I, be carried away in the idea of I, this. I feel like I'm supposed to be the skeptic of this group. Uh, I think I buy it. All right. I mean, look, she's an easy target. I don't mean that to sound too negative, but, you know, she's a girl who's horny as hell and clearly attracted to him and he probably senses that and she's a bit of an easy target to mislead so sure the the scenario is there for that to be the case but he's never done anything to 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 earn her distrust he's treated her honestly he's murdered other commanders in his group to come join her side he's faced lots of danger for her he's never you know switched coats I don't know. I, I kind of believe it. All right. I kind of believe it. I've just got a bad feeling about this. Yeah, you would. In the words of every bad every, every, every Star, Star Wars, Wars character, character. Yeah. in the series. Oh, man. They, they they take it to new heights in uh, Rebels. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's all over the place. Almost to the point like, guys, tone down yeah. the bad feeling about this. Yeah, okay? exactly. Uh, dragon eggs on Dragonstone. What do you got? <laughs> Anything? My answers are are so boring today. Well, it's blind speculation. Why not? <laughs> uh, I guess maybe I could respond with. You know, are there caches of dragon eggs around? Um, And yeah, Duncan Egg, there's a line that talks about how that Dunk mentions like the last dragon left a, or not Dunk, Egg, mentions that like the last dragon left a clutch of eggs. Mm -hmm. And then he 
says this other line that appears to be throwaway, but in this context seems to have more meaning. He says, and they have more on Dragonstone, old ones from before the dance. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, why not? Um, I guess the question is... I'll tell you why not. Go ahead. You tell me what the question is. Then I'll tell you why I guess not. the bigger question is, is if there are dragon eggs on Dragonstone, what would Loras do with them? Um, what would lead him to think that... To look for them in the first place and place value on them? And uh, how could they play into the story? Yeah. There needs to be... In other words, there needs to be some thematic or legitimate reason for there to be dragon eggs. Not just, oh, that'd be cool if Loras found dragon eggs, but no, why would he be looking for dragon eggs in the first place, and what would he want to do with them? you got to ask yourself that, too. Well, I mean, the obvious answer for why are you looking for dragons is, I can rule the fucking world. Um, the okay. more immediate literary reason would be, we can have a second Dance of Dragons with Danny and and whatever clutch they find, if they can awaken them. Although it would be years now before they got to be big enough. So I'm, I'm not sure that adds up unless we get some sort of unannounced five-year gap. Um, but the existence of the dragons to that point are still hearsay to the people in Westeros, right? Uh, like, no, yeah, I'm talking about literary, literarily, like future okay. of the, yeah, of the arc. They, they uh -huh. would have meaning. But from from a from a personal standpoint, for Loras, any dragons are helpful, right? I can. I, I guess I have power. trouble being like him even coming to the conclusion that he could hatch like yes, that dr yeah. hatching dragon eggs would even be a viable yeah like benefit to them yeah you know yep no it's a fair argument I, I, here's what I will say I don't think Stannis has any uh, or Melisandre mm -hmm. would be <laughs> her bragging would would be you know we'd smell it from here uh, if they had actual <laughs> dragon's eggs, right? She'd be demanding everyone sacrifice so themselves true. to hatch the dragon so eggs. True. So I don't think Stannis so has true. any. Yeah. Uh, Roland Storm might have found some. They're digging down there to mine... Uh, dragon glass. To mine dragon glass, and maybe they found some dragon eggs while they're at it. So it's possible Roland Storm has some. Uh -huh. And it's possible that the Loras will find some or will take the ones that Roland Storm has... Uh, you know, now that he's in control, assuming he's not dead, which we don't believe. And who knows if Roland and Loras are allied at this point? You, you don't know. Or even more than allied, Matt. Are you talking about Look. Loland? <laughs> Rolus? <laughs> New theory. <laughs> New ship. Yeah. Uh, Loras Storm. Uh, what is it? It'd be Rolus. Storiel, Storiel, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I don't think I'm proposing any of that really. But uh, yeah, I mean, there could certainly have been some sort of a truce made, um, you know. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I kind of, as lame as I am, like I know this makes me like not a fantasy fan in some ways. But I, fewer dragons are better. I don't want a million of them. I don't want to dance mm -hmm. with dragons. I want the dragons that are in the world. I probably actually want them extinct at the end of the story. <laughs> and, Whoa. and and I want you know I want the humans to figure out a way that they can live peacefully, uh, you know. But I think there's going to have to be a conflict with the others as well. And I can't imagine the dragons aren't involved in that somehow. But I don't want mm -hmm. more of them. I really don't. 
I think that goes to your point of like, what are we doing with them if, if there are any, literary, right? right? Mm-hmm. No, I can see that. You don't want to overdo it and just turn this into a book about dragons fighting each other. Because that's not what it is. It's mm-hmm. a book about family and politics and yep. striving for power and the illusion of power and. It potentially gets away from, yeah, what makes these stories great. Right. Potentially, right? You know, and and who knows if. George couldn't figure out a beautiful way of yeah. doing all of that, but yeah. Right. Okay. Well, uh, why don't we, uh, let's move to sign off. You ready? Yes. Can I just point out one more thing? Yeah. Point out one more thing. I think, I think Cersei killed Malara. Do you? I do. I think she, I think he, she pushed her down the well. All right. Why? So she wouldn't stop talking about the visions. Later on, I, I think, yeah, her motive for doing it is a little bit less clear. Um, Malara did mention to her that, you know, if we don't talk about these prophecies, they won't come true yep. or whatever she says. Mm-hmm. And um, so this could be a way to kind of silence Malara and keep, you know, Malara is the only other person that knows about it. So if Malara is not in the picture anymore, it's silent. No yeah. one's going to talk about it. Right. Um Motive number two could potentially be jealousy. Malara has a crush on Jamie, um, obviously, and Cersei could be potentially bugged by that. Uh, but I there buy, are some. I buy one more than two. Go ahead. I, me too. Yeah, because you know she doesn't Cersei see, she doesn't, doesn't care seem intimidated about Malara. By, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah she Malara's knows exactly a threat, where where right? Jamie's quote unquote loyalties lie. Exactly. Um, so. Cersei was apparently there when Malara fell down the well. Uh, in a later chapter, she says she was not speaking about Malara. Cersei says she was not so silent in the well, though. She screamed and she shouted, which gives me reason to believe that Malara survived the initial fall down yeah. and was trying to get out screaming and shouting. Cersei heard that and did nothing. Or, yeah, we could jump to that conclusion. She didn't do anything. Or, you know, if we give Cersei some credit, she wasn't able to save her in time, maybe. Um, But yes, if if this theory that she killed Malara holds true, then she did nothing. Um, Later on during her walk of shame, Cersei starts seeing things in the crowd of people as she walks by. And one of the things she sees is Malara and her accusing eyes. And I thought that was interesting. interesting the the use of, of accusing yeah. her accusing eyes, um, and it would give a little bit more meaning to what Maggie says about Malara. And I didn't say this in my summary, but the quote is, "Your death is here tonight, little yes. one." Um, and we know that Malara doesn't die that death very is night. Cersei. Yeah, yeah. And in in the next line, she says, "Is can you smell her breath? Yeah, she is. She is very close." Yeah. You know, on the surface, that just means that she's death is close. giving yeah. death is her. Uh-huh. She's using the term her to describe death or humanize death a little bit. But if that's Cersei, then Cersei is right there with her. No. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing, I mean, the, the only thing in evidence I'd suggest against, you've painted something compelling, I, I might believe it. Um, we're in Cersei's head, and she mm-hmm. never admits to it. Sure, and and certainly people put up blocks and mm-hmm. teach, teach themselves things that are not true and convince themselves of those things. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe she has that block set up. But mm-hmm. when she's directly asked, uh, 
oh, do you still think of Malara? Is that why you have bad dreams or whatever? She's like, no, I, I don't even, I can't even remember what she looks like. Yeah, that would have, that would have been an instance where she could have said, yeah, I dream every night about how I shoved her down the damn well. Um, mm-hmm. but uh, Fair. yeah, anyway, the good, a good point. Some interesting stuff. The accusing eyes for sure is what's she accusing her of? Mm-hmm. Unless yeah. it's and, and more a maybe message it's... of innocence of youth and now Cersei's corrupt. I don't know. I don't it know. Could be, and it could be less malicious. It could be that um, Malara fell down the well and Cersei feels guilty after the fact that she didn't do more, to more of what she could to save her. It could just be that as well. Yeah, right. Cool. Um, sign off then? Yeah, let's sign off. Go for it. I really don't have too much uh, of import to say. Just uh, thank you, Kalisar. I think there's sometimes a a worry that when a break like this happens, that something is wrong with us. <laughs> the people in the there's Dave Matthews Band community, there is people in the Dave Matthews Band community freaked out when the Dave Matthews Band announced that they weren't going to tour in 2018. Um, because they always tour and they're like, Oh no, is the band breaking up or something? And, and Dave's response was, Oh, we just, we've been touring for 25 years. We just want to rest, you know? And so don't worry guys. We're great. Scad and I love each other. We love doing this podcast and, uh, but looking forward to, to doing a little bit of relaxing. So we love you and we'll see you in a couple months. Uh, we should have let you go second. Uh, Mine is just a quote from Jenna Lannister. Cool. Men That's are a great such, way to end. Men are such thundering great fools. And we are. We really are. We totally are. We're just idiots. Yeah. yeah. That's all I got. Thanks, Kalasar. <laughs> See yeah. you in the new night, year. Guys. Love you. See ya. Bye. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles blue like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom but we love his wolf He's John Snow Have you ever been apart but felt sort of apart Or that you're not quite legit Your daddy's the same but a different last name And that's the least of it your mama might be Willa or a shower Dane. But when you look at Auntie Leanna, well, her hair was the same. And now we're going up north. There's a wall up there. And the nights are cold as Catelyn's icy glares. There's no use chasing crowns you could never wear. And so a crow's life for me. Yeah, a crow's life sounds pretty good to me. Uh-uh. Now we're going up north where the gods are rolling.
17 years old, he loves him free folk and dreams as a wolf. He's John Snow. At some point, yeah, we, I mean, we need to talk about that. It's going to come to an end in, what, like seven months or something, if your schedule is right. Yeah, June or July. Yeah. Uh, although I didn't I didn't take into account us taking this kind of a break. Oh, you didn't? Uh, so it's more like August. it'll be more like end of summer. Yeah. yeah right. Anyway. Which is still, it seems like a long time, but that being said, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> this, year's, this year's gone super fast. Oh, my so. gosh, so fast. I. I look at the page number we're on for a feast for crows, and I'm like, "Ah, break! We should just finish it. Let's let's just go." But at the same time, I know it's not that close. Oh, I feel so bad for you. Now, when I take these little breaks, you don't have anyone to talk to. No, <laughs> and uh, I don't even rap anymore. <laughs> You're just a defeated old man. I just like sit there and wait, <laughs> <laughs> relishing the silence. Oh.